Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. Uh, Rocky and I are here today to talk about the DC Comics for the week of September 7th, 2021. And once again, DC's putting out a ton of books, man. And it feels like a little bit of a strange week. Not the best quality, but at the same time, some really, really great books. So I, I feel like the gap between the best books and the worst books is bigger than we've seen from DC in a while. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think that I think that what it is, in fairness to us, I, I actually do think, though, I'm going to err on the side that DC is still... DC is just increasing their, their output, and I think that with that, obviously, when you increase your output, you, you can't... The, the likelihood of not every single comic book you know hitting it out of the park it sort of increases uh, i still i think there's a there's a good number of of comics here that i think i'm going to be we're going to be talking about uh, that that i do enjoy this week but like i said i mean we i think i think i was telling you earlier we were talking off uh before the podcast about just how maybe it's a little bit of about fatigue when we have to review 16 comic books sometimes a lot of uh sometimes we might fail to appreciate some of the some of the nuances of some of the comic books in terms of the the great stuff that they have to offer, but uh, uh, it does get it does get a little weary after a while, and sometimes you got to wonder if putting up so much product is the best is the best publishing strategy. But per- perhaps that's a topic for another day. <laughs> no, I agree with you, and you're 100 percent right. It's like, man, I got to read 16 books. Like, you know, if if we weren't spotlighting all these, there's some of these books that I I definitely wouldn't read. But at the same time, there's some of the books that I wouldn't be reading otherwise if we weren't spotlighting everything that i'm actually really enjoying it and that's the thing that makes this week kind of weird for me like there's one one of the books and I'll, i'll mention it when we get to it that like i haven't really it's just been meh and then this week's or month's issue comes out and i'm like wow this is really great i'm glad i read the first you know three issues or what have you because it's it's this issue i absolutely loved and i would have missed it if, if we weren't covering this, but then there's other stuff like that I typically enjoy. That's just like, I don't know. It feels like a little overkill, you know, like three suicide squad books this week. Like yeah. that's a lot, <laughs> yeah. you know? So yeah. uh, anyway, let's dive into it. Uh, the first book. And I, I definitely did enjoy this one. It's, you know, and if you're a DC fan, I feel like you, you have, what's wrong with you. Can't call yourself a DC fan. If you don't love the booster gold and blue beetle dynamic, it's goofy. It's fun. So uh, unfortunately, it's, it's also a little bit late, and I don't know if this has to do with supply t- chain issues or what, but it's been a while since we've had the first issue. But we get the second issue of Blue and Gold from writer Dan Jurgens, Amazing Ryan Sook art. Uh, he handles the colors as well. Rob Lee does the letters. Uh, and, and I just thought this was a, a whole lot of fun. Um, as expected, there's plenty of action. There's plenty of humor. But at the end of the day, things sort of fall, fall apart for our, our, you know, heroic duo, as you sort of expect them to fall apart. Yeah. Um, because they just never go the way that, especially for Ted Kord, um, he's just such, he's almost the sad sack of the, of the DCU. And to see him, you know, thrown out of his own father's company, which maybe he hasn't been paying the most attention. Maybe he hasn't been making the best decisions. It's a little bit of a departure from... Yeah. When when Blue Beetle first was brought into the uh, the DCU after a Crisis, Ted Cord, there was still a little bit of humor in that series. I can't remember who wrote it, but I know the art was by Paris Collins because I absolutely love the art. I can't remember. It's one of those classic 
uh, veteran DC uh, writers back in the eighties. I'll have to, I'll have to look it up here in a second. Yeah. But I just remember loving it. But he was so he was so capable back then. And then when you got in the dynamic of the of the Justice League and the Bwahaha era, he became a little more bumbling and he a little more comic relief. But his heart was always in the right place, you know. And again, depending on the writer who was writing him, right? I, I would make the argument that as much as people don't like Heroes in Crisis, if you're a Ted Cord fan. That's maybe the most competent we've seen Ted Cord in a really long time. Like he gets yeah. it done. He 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 breaks Booster Gold out of the the Justice the Hall of Justice, right? Yeah. And here in this one, we see him screw up with some software that was supposedly unhackable, which leads to basically a vote of no confidence from the board of directors, and he's thrown out of his own company. And so now it's like bad enough that they didn't get invited to rejoin the Justice League after the events of issue one. They thought they were going to at least have the backing of, of Court Industries. Mm. Now, Ted Court is out on the street, <laughs> broker than ever. Um, and I, yeah, I just don't, like that doesn't quite, I don't want to say quite sit well with me, but there's a little bit of it that doesn't make sense. Because even if he was voted out and no longer able to make corporate decisions, he still has to own a ton of the. It's his company. He still owns it, right? So, yeah. I mean, yes, you may have been fired, you know, removed from the board of directors and fired as CEO or whatever his his you know C executive role was, uh, and they don't even want him to to be a research uh, scientist there anymore. Like, I get that he loses those positions. He still should be the uh, majority stockholder, though, so he shouldn't necessarily be broke, but. Again, it fits the narrative that Dan Jurgens is, is telling here, where just nothing can go right for these guys, and it ends up being a lot of fun because you know it is all in good fun. And I'm I'm sort of nitpicking here um, for uh, this doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. You know, <laughs> and when immediately when I thought that when I read that scene, I, I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. And then immediately following that, I'm like, but but Dan Jurgens has to give us some character drama. Like he's got to make things go bad for these guys. Because that's usually what happens when Booster and, and Blue Beetle get together. It's like things go like as bad as they possibly can. Like wor worst case scenario for these guys. And you, at some point, you have to wonder as as much as they care about each other, as much as they have a bromance, as much as they're great friends. At some point, do you realize that man, you guys, you don't work together. Like when you when you guys get together, bad stuff happens for both of you. Maybe you should just call it a day on your friendship. You know. Uh, but that's the whole point, right? As, as bad as things look, they always manage to pull it out at the end, and it's always their friendship that's enduring, and it's what makes them sort of relatable. So, yeah, I'm enjoying this. Uh, I mean, Ryan Sook doing interiors is fantastic. The color work uh, that Ryan gives as well is, is really, really uh, done exquisitely. I mean, obviously, when you're doing line work and color work, you can uh, make sure that you're your line work suits the colors you're using. You know, you already have in mind the way you're going to color this. You can take shortcuts and whatnot. So, yeah, I'm I'm really really digging this. I just hope that we don't get any more late issues because I feel like uh, having you know a month extra between the issues definitely hurt it. Because I I think I, I remember you and I talking about it, Rocky. Like, wait, do we do we forget to review Booster Gold Blue and Gold <laughs> like a couple yeah. of weeks ago, and then we realized yeah. no, it, it got delayed, so we didn't get an issue in August. <laughs> I hope yeah. there are no more delays because I don't want to see the uh, I don't want to see the momentum you know thrown off track by by there being delays. So anyway, what what do you think of it? Well, I, I agree with you. You know, I, I actually have mixed feelings about this. You know, one of the things about uh, you know Dan Jurgens in his classic style, you know, he, he knows these characters very well. In fact, arguably, no no writer. 
No writer today knows Booster Gold and uh, and Blue Beetle better than Dan, writer Dan Jurgens, and it does show here. Although, having said that, I am inclined to agree with you that I, I do get a little bit frustrated, and it, it, it actually pissed me off a little bit, in a good way, with a smile on my face, but I, it irked me a little bit that, you know, you know, Ted Cord is sort of like, he's sort of like the bumbling Bruce Wayne. He's like Bruce Wayne, but with a couple of IQ points lower. I mean, Bruce Wayne's often uh, bragged about as being like the second most smartest man in the DC universe next to Lex Luthor, and Ted Cord is a genius too. He created this tech company and everything else, but, you know, uh, and I even like the way Dan Jurgens incorporated uh, the Suicide Squad story by Tom Taylor into this, where where Ted Cord was impersonated by Black Mask, and there was that fiasco in that ten issue, eleven issue series with Tom Taylor. Uh, but but the fact is, Ted Cord does screw up, but he's a superhero. But you know, it's interesting that you know Bruce Wayne does an awful lot of things as Batman, and Ted Cord, you know, well. I actually, I suppose in fairness, Bruce Wayne lost his fortune because of his machinations as Batman. <laughs> and here we have Ted Cord losing his fortune as well, or at least losing his status as CEO. And cause he's willing to put his friendship with Booster and his, his, his do-gooding, his superheroing ahead of his own corporation, much to the chagrin of his shareholders that comes through here. But, uh, so, but uh, you know what? I I'm not going to get upset with Dan Jurgens about that because I think at the end, I think I, I like Dan Jurgens. I think is aware of that. He's he's aware of what he's doing. He's 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 doing this on purpose. This is a specific plot point that that. Booster Gold, Ted Cord has a legacy. His father created an automobile company. I mean, this issue starts off with him driving a Jeep that he sort of jimmied together with parts to rescue Booster Gold, his buddy. And, you know, his his company, he, he has a corporation that exists in a world of social media. And we got Booster Gold who wants to post all their adventures online with an online social media podcast of every adventure they're in, which sometimes flies in the face with their adventures or with his with his role as CEO of Ted Co- of Cord Industries and so there's there's that there's that tension there and that drama and Dan Jurgens as the writer has that uh, he has that challenge of trying to be able to imbue some humor into what is frankly when you think about it a quite a real life genuine this is a real life difficulty that one would have you know because how often i mean we, in the real world here, we criticize, we, we criticize AT&T for how they run DC. We criticize Disney for how they run Marvel and the MCU. And, and so here's Dan Jurgens trying to imbue some humor and see the light side of this. That here's Ted Cord, who's running a, a company, and yet he's actually a superhero. And he's got a buddy who wants to post all this stuff online. And they got these crazy adventures. And I think Dan Jurgens does a good job here of imbuing some humor in this while these two you know, would-be, wannabe Justice Leaguers sort of try to navigate their way through the landscape of the DC Universe. And I think for the most part it works. And this puts a smile on my face every time I read it. And I might be a little bit upset that Ted Cord is getting the shit end of the stick here with respect to his corporation, but it's it's in a good way because he is genuinely a good guy. And look, there's something about Booster Gold and Ted, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle that we fans, we just love. We love these characters, and even when they screw up, it comes from the right place. It comes from the it comes from a good place, and so this is always a great comic book to read. So yeah, this is always a a good and easy recommend. Yeah, and the other thing about it is you wonder, you know, like we know as readers that the reason he's he's sometimes unreachable is because he's out there playing a hero, and, and you wonder 
Like if his if his board knew that, like it wasn't his identity at one point known. Didn't he not have a secret identity? People knew. Like, well, I feel like that's a, that's a thing at, at some point. And well, I, mean, I, I he changes that kind of stuff all the time. So maybe I'm misremembering. Yeah, you know what? I I, I can't. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that Ted, you know, Blue Beetle was my number one uh, superhero that I followed religiously. I, it's it's not. So maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But, you know, it, it appears here that at least in this continuity, the board doesn't seem to be, uh, you know, uh, the board just no, cares about. Know. Yeah, they, they yeah. just care about money and they just care about public perception and everything else. And and I think that this is a, a plot line that might go somewhere because I do think that th- this idea of Booster Gold wanting to you know publicize and put online all of their adventures on social media i think that could have potential benefits to ted cord to cord industries moving forward so you never know we might see uh, ted cord get his ceo ceo position back at some point in a future issue this might be a because it does seem to be i don't think i i think it's significant that uh writer uh, dan jurgens made this a specific plot point and i i do think it he's going to have some probably satirical commentary on corporations in general moving forward. Yeah, I just, I mean, as far as his secret identity, I just feel like, man, if he even, like, let a, let a board member or two know that you're, you're Blue Beetle, right? <laughs> yeah. You don't have to tell everybody. But if you yeah. have a, one or two of them on your side, they may be able to persuade the other people. Well, I know he's unreachable, but, you know, because they know he's out there. Yeah. Life, so. See, we, we now have we now have an appreciation for how bad Bruce Wayne had it trying to hide all that. You know, how do you, how do you create all that those side avenues for that for that revenue to to fund all those little interesting yeah. toys that Batman had? You know, you know, with, with Ted Cord, he's probably not quite as good at it as uh, Lucius Fox was for Batman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, on to the next book. It's Infinite. Frontier number six. This is the end of the, uh, the I guess, the first chapter of the story uh, for um, for Infinite Frontier, which is obviously is the uh, the uh, what am I? What's the word I'm searching for? The, the publishing initiative uh, that DC has going on right now. So written by Joshua Williamson. Uh, the art here is by Zermanico, Ramulo Fardo Jr. on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters, and, and I do appreciate that the entire issue is drawn by one person i think it we've talked before in the past about how they've had like three different artists on the book and while their styles have been similar it just doesn't flow as smooth as it does here i really did like the art in this issue and, and there's a lot to unpack in this one rocky so wh- what did you think of uh, infinite frontier as oh, man. Up? well uh first of all i want to give a shout out to the covers here there are three covers all of them are fantastic the the, the regular cover has calvin ellis president superman of earth 23 Attacking and, and in battle against Darkseid, absolutely gorgeous. There's an uh, there's a cover B with just Darkseid on the cover, absolutely again gorgeous with Darkseid with his fist almost clenched with his multiversal energies in his hand, and then just a darker gloomy cover with just an imposing Darkseid figure. I got to tell you, some of the best covers I've seen have Darkseid on them, and it's just, I really love the covers. I want to get all three covers for issue six. They're all amazing, and I would encourage people to check them out. Hopefully the uh, supply crisis or the paper crisis we have won't prevent people, <laughs> won't won't impair the publication of this, so we can actually get this as a physical copy as opposed to just digital, but I really love the covers. Uh, this, uh, this is really significant stuff here. 
at, at the end of this, I mean, we know that Darkseid has basically, Darkseid wants to, uh, Darkseid is, is in control of Earth Omega. And what is revealed here is more, more, just more, more pieces of the puzzle in terms of the big event that we're going to be heading into with DC in 2022, this next crisis and and i know some people are going to just you know yawn and say oh really another crisis and you know what i was i was inclined to think that too but i'm really interested in where this is going here uh dark side what dark dark side has made a pitch he dark side has his own sort of group of injustice he's got his own injustice group injustice uh, injustice league and he's got Basically, he's convinced a number of individuals throughout the multiverse that, you know what, Earth-designate zero is the problem. Whenever there's a crisis, Earth-zero seems to come through it unpinged. He basically, if you help me, you know, uh, if you help me as as someone who is in control of this uh, Earth-Omega, which is one of the two centers of the multiverse, if you help me get control of the Omniverse... Uh, with the help of the Flash, who he's got manipulated by Psycho Pirate to basically crack the Omniverse. If you help me get control of the Omniverse, I'll make sure that your Earths are protected against whatever machinations that I do. And guys like Machine Head from Earth-23, they really like that because they're sick and tired of guys like Flashpoint Batman coming along on Earth-Zero and, and causing havoc with the timeline and creating all these Flashpoint paradoxes and, and all these crises and all these convergences and all these events that DC has had going back to 1986. All that has resulted in Earth Zero getting the benefit of the doubt. Earth Zero always seems to come out of it in generally good shape. And basically what happens here is that uh, for people that are looking to an end to this story, an end to this Infinite Frontier six-issue series, this is issue six, people that are looking to an end to this story will be disappointed because this is just the beginning of a long narrative journey that will culminate, I'm presuming, in the, I'm assuming in the summer of 2022, because this carries on into Justice League Incarnate, which will be another six-issue series. But what this does, this sets the stage, and boy, let me tell you something, if you are a fan of the DC Universe, Universe for longer than 10 years, especially if you're longer than 10 years like me, going on 40 years, you're going to love this because it, what happens here is ultimately Justice League Incarnate, led by President Superman, uh, President Calvin Alice, he, he, they managed to defeat Darkseid and they basically prevent the sort of chaining of the various universes so that Darkseid no longer has control over it. But what that does is that this it opens up the multiverse to ultimately be controlled. And what Darkseid, what Darkseid reveals after he is defeated here, he sends all the heroes back. Even though he's defeated, he has enough energy to send all the heroes, the, the Infinite Corp... Inf Inf Infinite Incorporated and Justice League Incarnate back to their respective Earths. And he reveals that... Earth Omega was never a world, but it's actually a piece of a resting enemy dormant since, since the first crisis. So who is this resting enemy that's been dormant since the first since the first crisis? We don't actually know, but we have to wonder, is it the anti-monitor that, that that is the true resting enemy? Is it the gen, the gentry? Uh in fact, the the final page here it's worth noting it's the final page uh it it's a nine panel grid 
on one of the final pages and it shows on the top of the page in the middle, it shows the gentry, which is from Grant Morrison's Multiversity, who was responsible for the destruction of the first universe and then there was the second and the third. We have the Upside Down Man, who we know from the Witching Hour is a is a magical, multiversal, magical source of power. We have Eclipso. We also have Necron from Blackest Night, Jeff John's Blackest Night. So we've got the Gentry, the Upside Down Man, Eclipso, Necron. These are the enemies that are going to be competing with Darkseid to try to get control of the crack in the multiverse, That the uh, to try to find the Flash, get control of the crack in the multiverse, to control the larger Omniverse moving into 2022. Guys, and, and this is all to control the Great Darkness. And for those of you who may not know, in in uh, in Legion of Superheroes lore, we had the Great Darkness saga, which goes back to the days of Paul Levitz. So we've got we got what looks like to be almost like a Great Darkness saga compl- combined with a crisis, combined with multiversity, combined with Witching Hour, combined with Eclipso, combined with Blackest Night, Necron. This has all the hallmarks of what could be an absolutely epic event. This is the note that this issue ends on. And I got to tell you, um, I'm so excited about the seeds that are planted here. I can, that, that it overrides some of the criticisms I have of this narrative. I want to give Joshua Williamson some credit. He's absolutely whetted my appetite. The big question is though, can he nail the landing on this going into 2022? Because let me tell you something, this holds a lot of promise with all these players, these are multiversal level galactic threats. These are the greatest galactic threats. These are the greatest multiversal threats that the DC Universe has ever had in the history of the DC Universe going back to the original crisis. This is huge. Anti-Monitor, Upside Down Man, Eclipso, The Gentry, Necron, Blackest Night. All of this stuff combined and rolled into one, rolling into 2022. I don't know. There's so much hype on this. I'm so excited about this. I hate to say it, but I'm thinking to myself, my God, I'm almost afraid to get excited about it because what if I'm, what if, what if Joshua Williamson doesn't nail the landing? And I got a very mixed history with Joshua Williamson. I wasn't a big fan of his flash. The guy is, is really good at introducing interesting plot points, but he's not that great on nailing the landing, although he has been impressing me lately. So I don't know, Jace, what do you think? I'm I'm really excited for this. I I don't want to give too many. <laughs> I've already kind of given away some major spoilers here in a way, but I'm really liking. I'm I'm loving the hype here. I think this is this is exciting. Moving into 2022, if you're a DC fan, uh, do, you, do you share my feeling on that, or are you more pessimistic? Yeah, I'm not. I don't know. I, I feel like the series was so inconsistent. Like er, early on, we kept, or at least I kept saying, "God, when are these?" storyline's going to come together. When are these storylines going to come together? We're getting all these disparate storylines. And then they did come together, but it, it almost felt like it was more the characters coming together rather than the storylines themselves. Like what, uh, you know, like I'm thinking back to, okay, we, we had a, a Captain Adam from a different universe that literally like pulled himself apart and, and there was a big explosion, right? And, be, and because he was so scared of something. He, he, we're supposed to think he was scared of Darkseid? Like, I don't know that there's so many storylines like that where it wasn't ever really explained in a good way, or at least not in a way that where it felt impactful. So it sort of felt like it was a little bit padding of the story for the first few issues, which I don't understand because we only get six issues 
And, and this is only the first chapter of the story. There's still so much more of the story to tell. And so I end up thinking, well, if there's so much more of the story to tell, then why did you put those storylines that didn't really get fleshed out in the first place? So like technically, I feel like it maybe wasn't the, the best paced story, but there's so many little ideas in here that are fantastic that I give Joshua Williamson credit for. Um, both new ideas that are cool, as well as going and, and pulling ideas from the very first crisis, Pariah, you know, shows back up here. Um, and and he, he was a, a very interesting character and, and somewhat of a ubiquitous character in the first crisis. Look back at the most recent sort of crisis level event that, that was line wide and, and had crossovers and, and really changed the DC universe, which would be Flashpoint, right? I mean, it led into um, the, the New Fifty Two. So the argument could be made there that that is Flashpoint is the is even more important than, than Crisis on Infinite Earths. I mean, there were people like Marv Wolfman who out out coming out of Crisis on Infinite Earths said, "Hey, we need to start everything over with a new number one." DC wasn't willing to do that, and they they rebooted characters <laughs> over different times, and it, it caused a whole mess. And then they had zero hour to try to clean it up because they just didn't want to go whole hog. And then they did with Flashpoint, and then they realized they threw the baby out with the bathwater, getting rid of a lot of the legacy stuff. Um, but my point being that you, the argument could be made that Flashpoint is more important than Christ on Infinite Earths. And the, the argument could further be made that Thomas Wayne, the, the Batman of Flashpoint, is the most important character of that series. He's here. He's here in Infinite Frontier. Uh, and in a way, being redeemed from what Tom King did with him in uh, in his Batman run. So... There, you know, there are a lot of great smaller ideas here. You know, uh, Roy Harper as a as a Black Lantern. We're seeing characters from the Golden Age. You, you know, the, the the Earth Two, like Jade and Obsidian, Alan Scott Green Lantern. Uh, we have President Superman. So, so we're bringing in things from um, from Grant Morrison's Multiversity. So I think Williamson is doing a, a fantastic job of of pulling all these disparate. Um, sort of threads from the DC multiverse and making it feel like it truly is this multiversal story. Um, but again, technically, I don't know that the pacing works that that well for me. But I think, you know, when we talk about like really cool moments, for me, the coolest moment and, and the one that can really, I think, have the most impact going forward, or maybe I just think it should have the most impact going forward. It's early on and it, it, it can it can be something that you miss if you're not paying attention. And it's on the, the title page, the title double splash page where Darkseid is talking and he's talking about, uh, you know, what his plans are and how he, he killed the quintessence. Although I'm assuming that they're going to return at some point because those characters are just too important, especially Phantom Stranger and High Father. Uh, but what Darkseid says is all the multi, the quintessence witnessed my rebirth when the multiverse was restored. So he's talking about the end of Dark Knight Death Metal. But here is, to me, the most important sentence in the entire Infinite Frontier series. Darkseid says, all my past versions combined into one ultimate version. Now, to me, Darkseid should be the, the Omega level threat right? Like the end all be all threat. And there's different writers that have told stories over the years that where they've tried to, to make that true. And it hasn't always worked. Um, but he, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't necessarily want to compare him to Thanos or Galactus because he's somewhere in between Galactus at the end of the day is just hungry and he wants to feed. 
and he doesn't have any emotions. He doesn't care about humanity or life or whatever. All he cares about is his own survival, and that's it. Um, so you couldn't say that, that you really compare Darkseid to, to Galactus because Darkseid clearly has emotions. He's often angry and, uh, uh, you know, impatient and whatnot. So, you know, he's in that way, he's much more like Thanos, but he should be a bigger threat than, than Thanos is. Um, and, and this is a way to really level Darkseid up to say there is only one Darkseid, no matter how many, you know, he exists in all multiverses. And, and if you're talking about him in those terms, in a way, he's like the singularity from Scott Snyder's run on Justice League. It, it, he's the same in every uh, multiverse. It's the same person. I like that. That that really levels him up. And so I do hope that at the end of this, that Joshua Williamson plays into that. And it really elevates Darkseid. Darkseid shouldn't be somebody, not that he shows up a whole lot. Uh, and I'm not saying he needs to show up less, but when he shows up, it needs to be like a bigger deal. Like he, he should yeah. only show up in my mind, like maybe once every three to five years, but when he does show up, it should be a really big deal. Yeah, he should be used sparingly. I mean, because he's yeah. he's, the, he's the Omega level threat. And in fact, Omega is a word that's often associated with him. And, and that's exactly what he is. And and I totally agree with you. I, I find it interesting that, that Darkseid references other multiversal threats. But uh, I, I agree with you that Darkseid should be the one above all because really Darkseid is is not just a, an expression. He he really should be the ultimate threat, uh, Thanos level for the DC universe. No question. Yeah, that should be his his new name. Uh, the one above Dark Side. The one above all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of reminds me of the Immortal Hulk, right? The one. What is it? The one. The one below. Yeah, that's exactly uh, yeah. right. Yeah, the one above all. So, uh, so yeah, I, I did. I, I mean, I think there's a potential here. Um, I'm not going to say that this series uh, was terrible. I'm not going to say it was fantastic. It was somewhere in the middle. It certainly portends some really big things coming from Joshua Wimson. I just need him because I think he's a great idea guy. I just need the pacing to be a little better. And I feel like he's been around long enough that that should be something well, that he's a little better at. Because yeah. The argument could be made that that was the biggest complaint people had about his flash run was the pacing. It just it started off great and then it just kind of dragged and it dragged for an extended and, period of time. And that's that's my biggest worry about this is that uh, Joshua Williamson generally. I hope he learned a lesson from his flash run because his flash run he was on it too long. It dragged on way too much, and uh, you know I hope he I hope he's not dragging this story on longer than it needs to be because I mean he I hope he remembers that the original Crisis on Infinite Earth is considered one of the most epic classics. Uh, the, the first crisis level event and one of the best stories of all time in, in in comic books, at least in terms of crisis level events, events. And it was 12 issues long. You know, I don't want this to drag into like 37 or 94 or 48 issues where they think they need to tell some long narrative. Uh, I really hope he brings it home. I just want to say one quick note about uh, something Pariah said, uh, where Pariah said to Barry Allen, The Flash, he says something that I think speaks to me as a reader that I, I hope speaks uh, on a meta level outside the comic book Breaking the Fourth Wall. Pariah says The Flash, and it's time that we moved on, stopped apologizing for the past, and let the real multiverse truly live. And that's the way I feel. I think that DC 
in the real world, breaking the fourth wall here, I think DC has spent an awful amount of time trying to rewrite history, trying to apologize for all these crises. And yet here we are leading into another one. I really think that I really, I mean, God forbid, I hope that I, that maybe we get some degree of finality here or at least a new beginning where we don't have to repeat this cycle of crisis after crisis after crisis. And that I hope that Pariah's words here aren't just, uh, aren't just meaningless and that they actually have bear to have some fruit by the time this true narrative is over. Yeah, I agree uh, 100%. Uh, all right, on to the next book. It's Black Manta, number one. Chuck Brown is the writer. Valentin D. Landro. Valentin D. Landro is the artist. Uh, Marissa Louise does colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Obviously, this flows right out of uh, the Black Manta story we got in uh, the Aquaman 80th anniversary. Uh, Six-issue limited series. Uh, I'm a Chuck Brown fan, uh, but... You know, I've gone on record many times saying I'm not a fan of Valentine Delandro. I, I just don't care for the art. The line work is way too heavy in my mind, and it makes all the art just feel really muddy and heavy and static. Like it's not real kinetic. And I feel like Black Mana is, you know, a couple things. Black Mana is a very fluid character, uh, and and the other, you know, he, he should be. You should feel the movement in the art. And the other thing is he's water-based. So, you know, water-based art should be have a fluidity to it as well. And this art just doesn't have that. Uh, as far as the story itself, kind of interesting. I, you definitely don't need to read that Aquaman 80th anniversary because this, although you see some of the same characters in terms of uh, Black Manus uh, Fence, um, I, I feel like this only sort of plays into what we saw there with the the sort of mythology and, and like anthropomorphic beasts or whatever they were. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. The jury's still out. I mean, it's only one issue. So I'm not going to say it's terrible, but like seeing an actual old school pirate ship um, in the modern DC with Captain Demo, that didn't really come across. Didn't didn't work for me. Um, and then, you know, see, is it, is it magic? Is it science? Because Black Mana has typically been, his character has been rooted in technology, but now we're talking about magic stones and like I said, anthropomorphic animals. And I just didn't know what to, to think of this. Um, I know I would have enjoyed it more with cleaner, uh, more traditional comic art. So I'm trying not to let that color my outlook too much. Um, I, I thought it was paced well. Uh, and it's got some intriguing ideas, but there's not enough here in the first issue narratively wise for me to really say, you know, whether I'm on board or not. I do like black man as a character. In fact, one of my, my favorite characters, um, I think probably my first exposure to black Manta was on the old challenges, super fan car cartoons. And he had that really cool, deep robotic voice and just looked <laughs> cool. And yeah, I've loved him ever since then. And so I, I look forward to having him show up and hearing he was getting his own series. I was really excited um, but I don't know for me that this art is just, it's really hard to get past, uh, unfortunately. So I will, we'll wait and see, uh, jury's still out on the narrative. Um, so yeah, I can't, I can't really say one way or the other, whether I, I liked it or not. I will say that the main cover, um, I did enjoy. And I also think that the Francis Manipole cover, which is the, uh, it's like a one of 25, I thought was really, uh, was really pretty good. So. Uh, but yeah, the, the, um, 
I don't know. The interior art just, I struggled with it. So what did you think, Rocky? Well, I, uh, I like the art. I, I, for me, this seems to just resonate with my sensibilities. I, I actually like this. And, and, uh, and I think that we, uh, uh, like my comment before, when we reviewed the the Aquaman, the the sort of the teaser of this series in the Aquaman 80th anniversary issue that we just recently reviewed, I, I thought the artwork there too. I like this sort of James Bond feel to this. I'm getting an espionage feel to this. I I'm liking this. I I like the idea that this issue starts off with Black Manta doing the narration, and I like the lettering here with in, in black with the white uh, lettering about he's he's questioning what his legacy will be. Will he be a be known as a pirate or the black death will he just be known as a supervillain or a murderer or the scourge of the sea black manta is questioning what he will be and what reinforces black manta questioning his legacy is is gallus the goat his his female sort of not sidekick she's his broker and she's his she's also a pirate she's also she does his own brokering and she's helped him acquire this stone and this stone seems to have the ability to sort of info to, to infect uh the DNA of what they think are, are just maybe humans, uh, human DNA, and it, it's affecting various humans across the planet, and it's also giving Black Manta headaches. And this issue starts off with Black Manta essentially attacking some pirates who stole the cargo that contained this magical stone from from his broker, Gallus the Goat. And it's interesting that here's Black Manta. He rescues, uh, basically, he doesn't intend to rescue. He's, he basically attacks the, the pirates on this boat to get the, their cargo because they stole it from, from his, his partner, his broker, Gallus. Yet he doesn't care about the human cargo. There's actually human slaves. It's human trafficking going on as well. Yet he doesn't care about that. He's just there about the cargo and he's there about the principal and he's, he's all business. And I find that there's, it's an interesting sort of character approach that Chuck Brown is doing here. And I'm not sure if I'm giving writer Chuck Brown too much compliment when I say this, but uh, I'm, I'm going to give him the compliment anyway. I think he's planting the seeds here that I find it interesting that that here here we have Black Manta questioning what his legacy is when it's kind of clear he's kind of a jerk. I mean he he's, he doesn't care he's he's he doesn't care about the human cargo. He's all business. He even reprimands at one point he he's got he had, he gets into an argument with his broker Gallus the Goat and cuz she, you know, he he wants her to that she she sacrificed some cargo earlier on because she put human life above his cargo and she she tells him at one point that look you you train me you train me to uh to to act without mercy but not act without impunity i'm not going to just let innocent people die no matter what just because i have no mercy doesn't mean that i don't have some humanity and you know and she even hits at one point she even hicks uh, hits Black Manta and, and and defying him, saying, you know, you know, you don't control me. I mean, you train me, but that doesn't mean that you know I'm 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 actually living up to what you train me to do. And I find it interesting there that Black Manta seems to be struggling between a very between his dark side and an even darker side. And I like the character work there by Chuck Brown. If if I'm not if I'm being less flattering to Chuck Brown, I hope I'm flat. I'm I hope that's what his intention is. Otherwise, I could accuse him of just being inconsistent with his characterization of of David Hyde. But uh, in any event, I like this. I like where it's going. I like the idea that 
there's a side there's a side there's a side plot here that this Mr. Blue the, the human flame makes an appearance here where there's this character called Mr. Blue who I think is also I'm not sure if it's actually Black Manta as well. This Mr. Blue character, I'm not sure if he's actually David Hyde or Black Manta as well, but he somebody has a piece of this rock that Black Manta has and the the only way to cut into it is to utilize the human flame when he's in uh, his sort of ethereal form, and uh, in any event, I, I find it interesting that we're that that we have this we 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 have this side plot going on here. Of there, at one point, there's this professor that's giving a speech on what the difference between Atlanteans, Kryptonians, and and gods are. Like, is it, is the difference just DNA? Is it divinity? And it's a question I've often had. Like, what's the difference between a, a mutant or a metahuman and a god or a Kryptonian? Like, isn't it just DNA? Why why is Zeus not just considered a superhero or or a or, or a metahuman? What's the difference really between a god or a metahuman? And and these questions are being posed here in this opening issue. I find that very interesting. I hope Chuck Brown explores that because this stone that is having an impact on humans, on certain humans, is is uh, it, it poses a lot of interesting questions. And it ends. This series ends with this character. Uh, this Zabellian character being sort of uh, sort of awakened at the end, and just to be, what makes this more interesting is that th- this uh, Zabel is actually an Atlantean place. Uh, the king of Zabel is actually the the king of Zabel, the king Rylar. His daughter was actually is actually Mira of Atlantis, and he originally sent Mira to assassinate. Arthur Curry. So this Zabellian at the end, who's sort of awakened uh, from this stone, uh, it's interesting how Chuck Brown is drawing in that lore there, that connection. And, uh, you know, Jeff Johns and uh, Peter Tomasi introduced the Zabel, the, the, the Atlantean place, this sort of offshoot of, of Atlantis, Zabel. They introduced that to uh, Aquaman lore and mythology. And so here we have this Zabellian, X-E-B-E-L-I-N, Zabellian, if I'm saying that right, into this uh, into this uh, story. And she's got like a, they're, they're like a warlike, xenophobic race and they're xenophobic toward Atlantis and the surface world. And so she's being awakened, awakened by this stone and I'm really curious to see where this is going to go and what the, the nature of this stone is, because we learned from the 80th anniversary of Aquaman that this stone is actually has the has even more power than potentially nth metal. And she's awakened at the end here. And I'm really curious to see where this is going. I'm excited about this, man. I, I think Chuck Brownstein, he's really wet my appetite for this. And yeah. Kudos, man. I'm, I'm, and and I think the art here it works for me. I think it's kinetic. I think it's, I, I think it. Uh, I'm getting a, a a fantastic sense in terms of uh, what's at stake in terms of the their narration, the story itself. This white-haired, black, powerful woman at the end with a fear, with a fire sword. She looks kick-ass, uh, and she looks pissed off. It's not somebody I'd want to mess with. So. I don't know. I it's I'm definitely going to be picking up issue two. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up some good points. There, like I said, there's a lot of potential there. Uh, I just again, I, I wonder is this like going the magic route with with uh, Black Manta? Just I don't know. It, it feels a little incongruous to me. So 
Uh, anyway, on to the next book. Uh, I, I skim read this uh, in all honesty. I've talked about not being interested in, in Swamp Thing for a while. But it's been so good, and it speaks to Ram V's talent as a writer and Mike Perkins' uh, line work that I've been invested as long as I have. Um, but I don't really have much to say about this one. Uh, Ram V is a writer. Mike Perkins handles the art. Mike Spicer on colors. Aditya Bidikar on letters. Suicide Squad is still pursuing him, but we also get uh, a lot of background into uh, Levi Kamel and, and sort of stuff that I almost feel like maybe would have been better suited to have right in the beginning because we sort of get his his origin of, of maybe why he was chosen to be the avatar of the green. So, uh, yeah, I don't have much more to say than, than that, because like I said, I didn't, I'm not really invested in this story and I, I don't even know if I'll skim read the next one, but uh, you've been enjoying this one, Rocky. What did you think? <laughs> oh man, I really have. I've been loving this. I, I love the themes of this. I really think Ram V is really hit it out of the park. What, what the, the, the high point of this issue for me is that, uh, Amanda Waller wants to recruit Swamp Thing as part of the Suicide Squad. And she has, she sends in the team of Peacemaker, Nightmare Nurse, and, uh, uh, Firefly, and Chemo, and Chemo, and, and, and the Parasite in to try to, basically try to force uh, either get Swamp Thing to come in voluntarily or forcibly recruit him into the Suicide Squad. And Swamp Thing easily dispenses with, uh, Firefly last issue and here we've got the nightmare nurse who's capable of psychologically healing people and helping people heal themselves psychologically but she she does so uh in uh in well she's called nightmare nurse so she can do it in a very egregious manner and she she attempts to do so here with uh swamp thing and it's it's a brilliant narrative way for writer ram v to get into the heart of of the history of Levi Kamei and his origin in terms of what what made him become Swamp Thing in the first place with his father back in India and and essentially what's revealed here is that we we learn from issue 1 that Prescott Industries that Levi works for Prescott Industries and Prescott Industries wanted to buy some land in India particularly in an area of India called the the, the Kazaranga area Kazaranga the the Kazaranga forest and essentially uh, Levi's father did not want to sell saying look we don't want to sell to you the people of India don't want to sell this to you and the message he here that 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 Levi's father gives him and I'm going to just read it verbatim is he says to truly hold the gifts of this world you must also bear its responsibilities to find the cure you must also carry the mountain in other words in order to do anything good you must also carry the responsibility for doing that good. In other words, enough, everything comes at a cost and that you have to, you have to pay the price for even doing the right thing sometimes. And, and, and that's the message here. And Levi rejects his son's Pre Prescott Industries offer, even though he doesn't own the land, but you know, Prescott uses, Prescott Industries uses its influence to purchase the land in India. And this causes a bunch of protests in India against the, the, the purchase of the land. And of course, Prescott Industries does a political campaign saying, look, we're buying this land to build more schools, to build more infrastructure. So they got, they're saying all the right political points and everything else. But, you know, Levi's father's message is, look, this is, this is not the cure. This is, this, this is actually, you're doing more harm than good. And it's the, the theme of this story is progress versus environmentalism. And, you know, where do you draw the line between progress and maybe progressivism going too far? And this creates a rift between Levi and his father. 
And uh, and even Levi's mother says to him, you know, what happened to the boy who used to play in the mud? What happened to the boy who used to enjoy the environment? And this really creates that antag. It creates that tension in Levi, and it's one of the reasons why the Green chose Levi. If for those wondering why did the Green choose Levi, you know, why did the Green leave Alec Holland and is now choosing Levi? The the Green could have chosen anybody. Why did it choose Levi? And the, it's really settled here. It's it, it's the the answer is is because the Green was looking for someone that could ride that middle ground between being the cure and knowing that you got to pay a price. You got to pay a cost for doing what is right. And you got to be able to ride that fine line. And Levi is capable of doing that, even though he himself didn't know he was capable. Now, everything I just said, I'm reading a lot into this narrative because I got a lot out of this. People who read it might disagree with me in terms of what I'm, what I read out of this. I thought that in Levi's sense of responsibility to the green, he, he feels, he feels a responsibility to his father. And he realizes that, again, to find the cure, you must also carry the mountain. You got to to do the right thing, to be responsible, require some pain, some work, some suffering. And if Levi loses the memory, he loses the gift of the green. And when Nightmare Nurse says to him, the Nightmare Nurse says to him, let go of your memories. Let me take your memories away from you because your memories is what's giving you the pain, Levi. Levi, let me take the memories of your pain away. But if you take the memories away, you take the gift. And if you take the gift, you take the responsibility away and thereby you take the green. And that's why Levi rejects the Nightmare Nurse. She rejects him and says, no. She, she, he outright rejects her. And that's what's so powerful about this narrative. And it's so amazing. Uh, it was such a great moment. Swamp Thing says, Nightmare Nurse says to Swamp Thing, what is your answer? He says, sometimes the cure is to carry the mountain. And, and there's a beautiful panel where the Nightmare Nurse just looks down at him and she says, and she walks out of the cave and says, Kimo, I'm leaving. He's in there. I gave him a choice. I tried. So then Kimo, realizing that the Swamp Thing did not give up his memories, give up the green, that Kimo shoots all his chemicals into Swamp Thing to kill him. But in a great scene, uh, Levi, the Swamp Thing, uh, knows, has, knows that there's lots of elements in nature that can, that can combat uh, chemicals and biochemical warfare. And it ends with the Swamp Thing attacking Kimo. I thought this was one of my, this was probably my second favorite issue to date next to the first issue. Man, I'm, I'm loving this. I know some people are giving Ram V some criticism because they don't like his exposition. I think the exposition in this issue was the high point. I really enjoyed this. This was one, this was my favorite comic of the week, straight up. Wow, that's high praise for sure. I would not have expected you to pick that one for your, for your favorite. <laughs> Uh, all right, on to the next book. We're going to talk about Crush and Lobo number four from writer Mariko Tamaki. Art is by Amon K. Nahalapan, Tamara Bonbillen on colors, letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh, and this is the book I was talking about where I'm not a Lobo fan. I have no investment in Crush. Uh, I didn't read Teen Titans when uh, Adam Glass created her. So it, it's probably not a series I would have picked up. Um, but this issue far and away was my favorite of the the series so far um we're really getting to know crush we're really starting to see um her come out of her her shell and not not that she was shy 
but she's really starting to gain this level of confidence and gain this this agency um, to where at, by the end of it, she uh, figures out a plan to make the prison realize that she, she's not Lobo and they kind of don't care. They're like, well, whatever. Uh, it's not like we're going to get blamed for um, an escape because we still have a, somebody with cesarean DNA here and our numbers still match. We're supposed to have so many number of prisoners and we're still at that level. Um, <laughs> and then she kind of convinces, well, how about you let me go out and you know bring the guy back that's actually supposed to be here? So obviously there's going to be a big fight between her, a big uh, confrontation between her and, and Lobo. And I just enjoyed that. So, And I have a feeling that Rocky did as well because he, he's talked in the past of, specifically about the series where we're you know getting flashbacks and it's crush trying to be in touch with her feelings and whatnot and be a teenager when really you know she should be this badass cesarean who's who's brawling and uh you know kind of crazy and doesn't put up with anybody's crap well that's definitely the the crush that we get here um but much like her father you know there's still that level of cunning right i'm not gonna say like super intelligence whatever but smart enough to figure out a way out of this trap that Lobo uh, left for her. Uh, I thought the art and the colors worked really, really well, uh, particularly in the artwork, sort of the um, the camera angles that Amon Kate chooses, uh, like especially the scene where Crush is in, uh, in therapy and she gets the idea of how to break out and it's just her eyes getting real big and you can tell like a light bulb moment and the cycle light goes off above her. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's very, very well done. And uh, again, it's not a book that I, I would have picked up otherwise, uh, except for the fact that, you know, we're reviewing these press copies that we're getting. So um, I thought this was great. I thought the, uh, the dialogue and the scripting and the pacing, you know, I'll give Mariko Tamaki a lot of credit for doing that. I mean, she's killing it over on Detective Comics. And then this, which is something so wildly different in tone and feel with completely different characters uh, and she's nailing it here as well. So it's really showing her, her talent. And for me, she's been somebody in the past who's been inconsistent. I've, I've loved things she's done. And then there's other things she's done where it just hasn't worked for me. Um, and this has been decent throughout. I, I've, I've enjoyed it, but not to the point where I was like, wow, that is really good. This issue's really good. Like while I was reading it, I, I was thinking along like, oh my God, this is great. I mean, from, from Crush trying to eat her apparently sentient food in the cafeteria and it's moving away from uh, her fork to her uh, fighting a former yellow lantern Brock uh, to that light bulb moment. Like I said, uh, the entire entire issue I thought was, was fantastic. So uh, did it work for you, Rocky? I mean, this is what you've been wanting, right? Her ready to <laughs> brawl and, and cut yeah. loose. Yeah, no, th this was, this was definitely the best since, since issue one. I thought, I thought it, I don't think we needed, uh, you know, three previous issues to get to this point. I, I think it was more decompressed than it needed to be, but, uh, I'm, I'm glad we finally arrived. This is, this is a crush that I, I, I like, I enjoy a little bit more. Obviously I have a bias because I'm, I'm, you know, I, I like, I like the craziest craziness of her father. I do think I like Crush. I don't think Crush is ready to have a relationship, and I I'm not a big fan of of the flashbacks with her relationship with her perfect, you know, son of you know daughter of billionaire uh, daughter. You know, she's going out with a daughter of, of a couple of billionaires, and it's I'm not a really a big fan of that. I don't think that works. I, that actually takes me out of the narrative a little bit. I just like Crush. 
Crush is a teenager. She should be leaving a. Te- she shouldn't be involved in a serious relationship. Good grief, she's a teenager. She should be being a teenager. If, if you're an adult, if you're de- like adults can have psychotic adulthoods. You're a teenager. Be a be a crazy teenager. I don't like wasted pages on. I mean, who really believes she's going to have a serious ongoing relationship? Come on, this is Crush. She's the daughter of Lobo. She's crazy. I like this issue because it's it's Crush finally using her her intelligence. She's she she is crazy, but she is she is intelligent. She's very good at what she does, uh, and that is being crazy, being psychotic, but acting psychotic, but also possessing some self awareness. I would I don't read Crush. I don't I don't read Crush to know how Crush is getting along in relationships. I mean, good grief, that to me is just misreading the room when it comes to this character and the Lobo family in general. I mean, who the hell reads the Lobo family to 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 figure out how to make a relationship work? I mean, come on. I mean, uh, <laughs> that's not what I don't know. That, that's not what this should be about. I mean, if you want to if you want to do that, do a young adult, do a DC young adult fiction with with uh, with Crush then, but don't make this here. I enjoyed this. And uh, there's a, my favorite page is there's a there's a double there's a full page uh, spread or full page picture of of Crush, and right down the middle you see half of it is her image, the other half is the image of her dad Lobo. It's just it's just great because you can see the you can see the the similarities between daughter and father, and it's it's just great. It's it, this is exactly what I was hoping for, and we finally got it in the fourth issue. Because we moved more away from that nonsense of her relationship. Good grief. This should be... Lobo and Crush should be about dysfunction and why relationships between parents and children don't work. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's... And I know that's a cynical way of looking at it, but that's my attitude. But I enjoyed this. Kudos to Marika Tamaki. I, the art was great. Everything worked for this issue. I had a lot of fun with this. I agree. Yeah, well, and we'll see where it goes. I think there it's an eight issue, right? So we got four issues. Uh, yeah, four issues left. So halfway there. Uh, all right. Up next, we're on to uh, another limited series, but this one is twelve issues. Uh, it's Bat and Cat issue seven. And in case you didn't hear the news, uh, we have Liam Sharp doing the art on issues seven, eight, and nine. <laughs> so this is what's so interesting to me. Uh, Liam just absolutely killed it most recently on the Green Lantern, right, that he did with Grant Morrison and, and illustrating Morrison's crazy ideas. And, and it was really, we watched Liam go through an evolution on that series from his super detailed pencil work to this digitally painted style that was more fantastical and uh, and honestly more to his true sort of art aesthetic. Um, but he still has the ability to, to obviously do that super hyper detailed pencil work. Um, so he went from doing that to doing the Batman Reptilian uh, Black Label, which is only three issues, but then still has time to to then jump on uh, seven, eight, and nine issues of Batman Catwoman because we know Clay Mann is just a very slow penciler. Um, so I, I'm not disparaging Clay at all because I love Clay's art. Clay is is an absolutely fantastic artist from Ninjak to uh, his most recent work on, on Heroes in Crisis and then obviously some Batman work and then this. Um, but I think they just they knew that Clay wasn't going to be able to keep up. He hasn't been able to keep up. This is another one of those series that maybe is losing a little bit of uh, momentum because it's being shipped late because of Clay's art. So let's get Liam, who you know is also a very talented artist and, and creates beautiful images, to come on and do seven, eight, nine, 
And that gives Clay, you know, three months to work on 10, 11, 12. Will we, will he be able to finish 10, 11 and 12 in three months? Don't know. I mean, really, you, you know, you have five months to finish 12, right? Because you have seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. So maybe he'll do 10 and 12. Like, I don't know, but it's certainly giving Clay a head start on this. What's interesting is that Liam decided, okay, he wasn't going to go back to his super detailed pencil work because that's really time consuming. His more digital painterly quality, um, sort of fantastical, his style is, is much quicker, uh, but he didn't want to go all the way over to that level of art either. So he settled somewhere in the middle here. Uh, it's almost a mixture between the two. Um, and it just works. I wasn't sure how much I was going to like it. I love Liam's digitally painted stuff that gets fantastical and it's, it's really worked well in Batman Reptilian where it's moody and we, you know, we've talked about it at length. Uh, likewise, when he did the Green Lantern and it's these crazy space aliens that, that um, Grant Morrison is having him draw and it, and it really works. If he comes in between and it's a street level story for Batman, is, is that going to work, right? If he's not going back to his super detailed pencil work. Uh, and I just didn't know. Uh, well, based on the, the strength of this, I, I was blown away. You, you get some panels like when the older Selena opens the door, for example, uh, when the uh, commissioner, Dick Grayson, <laughs> who's the head of the police, shows up uh, to, to arrest her for, uh, for killing the Joker. And it's just gorgeous. It, it maybe isn't the most detailed uh, piece that Liam's ever done, but it's look at the fineness of the lines there, right? He manages to convey this is a much older Selena. You know, she's she's an old woman at this point, probably in her 70s. Uh, and that maturity is there in the face with the wrinkles and the texture. But she's still very beautiful, right? That still comes across with the eyes and the lips, the cheekbones. So it, he's able to strike the perfect balance between what I imagine is a relatively uh, quicker uh, – work that he's doing in, in terms of pencils it's not you know everything super detailed in the background and whatnot but you're still getting that that classic feel um, yeah. i mean to me that's just this page is just so typical of his artwork like look at the last panel with with dick grayson there and and the expression on his face and the shadows it's just it's gorgeous art throughout so that page really got to me and then there were a couple of pages with bruce one where bruce has uh Selena reclining on his lap on a sofa. And then another one where uh, Bruce gets trapped in the bank vault, like Selena traps him there um, with the police right outside the, the bank vault door. And both of those uh, just, again, they convey such uh, emotion and detail without being hyper detailed like we've seen uh, Liam's art be in the past. So I don't know, this, this art just, just blew me away. And, and there's also an homage to that famous Adam Hughes Catwoman cover where it's like the mugshot and she's got the, you know, the lines behind her to show the height. And then there's a, there's a half Batman, half Bruce Wayne uh, image as well that I thought was, was spectacular. So I, I enjoyed this issue of Batman Catwoman so, so much. Um, but not only because Liam's art really elevated the story for me, but because the, we've talked in the past about how there's three different timelines that are going on, and it's at times confusing to, to really understand the narrative. Well, those timelines are starting to come together. They're starting to, to pay off, and we're starting to get, a, at least I'm starting to get a better understanding of, 
of how those three disparate story threads fit together, it's starting to make more sense. So uh, I'm enjoying that as well. And it may be that I'm to the point now, seven issues in, where maybe I should go back and do a reread of all seven issues in one sitting. It's just a matter of finding the time to do that. Um, but that, that also goes to my point about wondering if they brought Liam on to make sure there's no more delays because I have a feeling that DC knows that this is really a story and Rocky and I both talked about this. This is really a story that's going to read the best in one trade, right? So if it keeps getting delayed because, you know, Clay's taking his time to, to produce incredible art, um, you know, you can't blame him for that. But at the end of the day, you want to get this collected edition out so you can start, you know, making money off it because that's really where the sales on this probably are going to uh, to be the best is on the trade just based on the narrative and, and what uh, what Tom King tends to do with the stories. Yeah, you can see it there if you're watching us on YouTube, that half Batman, half Bruce Wayne image. And that's just, that's an iconic image. Uh, Liam should sell prints of that. He, he'd sell out yeah. like, shows <laughs> selling that. So, so yeah, this was one of my, one of the better issues of, of Batman Catwoman. Again, both because of Liam's art, uh, I think he did a spectacular job. Uh, but but a lot to do with the narrative starting to come together and it starting to make a little more sense. I wasn't as I didn't feel as lost reading this as I have previous issues. Uh, what did you think, Rocky? Well, I'm uh, I wish I could say I, I was where where you're at. I first of all, I mean, of course, I share your compliments on the art. I actually, I, uh, with with due respect to the Mikael uh, Janin, uh, you know, Liam. Liam Sharp, man, he could have been on this from the beginning. I would have loved it. But, you know, this this series has benefited from great art. But Tom King has always been gifted with great artists. And, you know, we've been singing Tom King's praise on a lot of his work on Rorschach, on Strange on Strange Adventures, on Super Supergirl, uh, Woman of Tomorrow. Uh, this is one that has been a little bit more missed for the two of us. Uh, it's finally starting to come around. I will say this. The previous six issues here... I almost like this issue sort of brings a lot of it home. And so far as like this issue, you know, Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle's daughter, Batwoman. I mean, I guess the future Huntress or whatever Batwoman, when she, who, what she is in the future, she asks, she, she tells Dick Grayson that I, you know, that I turned in my mother today. You know, I turned in my mother for killing the Joker. So in the future, she turns in Selena, her mother for killing the Joker. I don't even know why, but she does that because she's her, she's her father's daughter. And she, you know, her own daughter questions her, you know, how could you marry, you know, you know, how could my dad marry my mom? I mean, they, you know, she was, you know, she's everything that my dad wasn't. And, and that's exactly the question I have as a reader. I don't, and because we're getting both the present and the future and the past, we're getting these three different timelines. Tom King has failed to to convince me what Bruce Wayne in the present sees in Selena. He's failed. So I don't understand why they're together either. Now, maybe that's a question I'm supposed to be asking, but I don't mean that as a compliment. I, I feel, I feel that he's not, I, I felt this in his Batman run and I'm feeling it now. I don't think he understands Selena Kyle. I don't think Selena Kyle would ever kill the Joker where in at any age or if she would, she certainly wouldn't be with Bruce Wayne. I can't imagine she's going to end up with Bruce Wayne and then stay with him for 20, 30 years. And then after Bruce Wayne dies, then all this comes to a head. I just don't, I don't buy that. Uh, I just, this narrative isn't working for me. The, 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 all these timelines, it's not meshing for me. Now, 
in Strange Cat, I look at I look at Tom King's Strange Adventures. Admittedly, and even with Rorschach, he loses me for a couple issues, then he brings it all back in and he makes the f- previous issues make sense. And then Strange Adventures, I feel he's losing me and then all of a sudden he gives me an issue where suddenly some things make sense. I haven't quite had that yet with this. Uh, I'm, you know, uh, so we'll see. The art is so fantastic. He's very lucky he's got a good artist because otherwise I wouldn't be staying with this for as long as I have. But... Uh, uh, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I, I still, of all the Tom King stories that he's got, all his work that he's got out right now, this is my least, uh, interesting, but you know, Liam Sharp, that guy's talent is amazing. Uh, you know, he's going to drag me back and I'm going to be buying this issue just for the art alone. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. This is my, the least favorite of my, of his, his work that's coming out right now for me as well. Tom King does have a, a creator own that he's currently working on. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, but the other, the only thing that I'll say about the, the narrative in terms of, um, because I get what you're saying, you know, a, a cat woman that, you know, waits until Bruce is dead and then goes and kills the Joker. This is a black label. So these are different versions of, of the characters and maybe that we're, we're used to. Hmm. So not, not that that doesn't mean that DC couldn't pull them into continuity later, a la killing joke. Um, but I get, I get your point. So. Well, I just say that, I mean, the counterpoint to what you just said, though, Jace, is that in, in a sense, this was sort of a de facto continuation of his Batman run, but but written the way that he wants to write it, w- w- unconstrained by continuity. So, I mean, that's so you can say it's black label and out of continuity, but it kind of it's Tom King's way of continuing the continuity from his own run. So, and his own run never worked with me. So that's, that's the only reason why I personally, I can only cut him so much slack for that, but, but I understand the point you're making. And, and I, you know, I, I've, I've, I've given Tom King quite a lot of rope here. I just hope he doesn't hang himself with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Uh, okay. Up next, another Batman title. It's Batman One Twelve from writer James Tynan. We have Jorge Jimenez doing the art. Tamea Mora on colors, Clayton Cal on letters, and uh, Fear State. Fear State is, is well underway at this point. So, uh, yeah, this is one of the first books I, I read. I'm skimming through it right now. I'm like, do I even remember? Oh, yeah, that's what went down. <laughs> uh, anyway, what did you think? Are you digging Fear State? Is it kicking off in a, in a good fashion for you? Uh, yeah, I'm just um, – I, I, I found that this uh, – it seems to be a little bit slower paced. I, I don't find this to be. Uh, first of all, I, I know kudos to T- Tinian. I don't know who if if he helped with the design of this, but the design of the Scarecrow. I'm loving the New York for the the new look for the Scarecrow here. Uh, it's just amazing with his with his crazy you know Scarecrow like hat and the and the crazy looking ridiculous looking gas mask, which is more insane than it normally looks, and the and the green. Almost like it looks like it's like venom or toxin filled, you know, uh, tube tubing that's connecting to all his fingertips. Yeah, didn't, didn't we hear that it was some, like a venom derivative? Like he's mixed his venom, he's mixed his his fear serum with venom and some other stuff to, to make it. Has he? Yeah. More. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, well, Batman mentions that because he's created. It's not just the fact that I mean, the whole premise of this of this fear state is that you know it's about creating natural fear in the citizens of Gotham, just in just right raising their fears through natural societal chaos and an increase in crime and and blaming the insanity collective for all the chaos and the craziness that's going on, but also also using a new type of fear toxin that uh, was, of course, Batman himself is experiencing at, at the beginning of this, as he says when he's communicating with Oracle, you know, I think I'm losing my mind again. Uh, and, you know, uh, we get we get more exposition. This is a little bit exposition heavy again. And I think for people that just came in off uh, the, the new comic book day fear state alpha issue, this sort of like continues on that. The big thing here is that Sean Mahoney... Peacekeeper one. Sean Mahoney was the he was the one heroic guard of Arkham Asylum during A Day, Arkham Asylum Day, when all when when that there was that attack in Arkham Asylum that that led to led ultimately to Fear State and what would be what we will know as Future State. He basically is recruited as as Peacekeeper Peacekeeper one, but he's also injected with this toxin by by the Scarecrow. And of course, now Peacekeeper One, he's gonna th- he's gonna throw a wrench into Simon Saint's plans because Simon Saint wants to manipulate all of Gotham. He wants he's manipulating all of Gotham through social media, you know, and you know, he- heightening their fears, blaming the vigilantes. He wants people to be able to rely on Peacekeeper One. But if Peacekeeper One, if this Sean Mahoney has gone insane, well, that's gonna really make Simon Saint look bad, and especially if uh, Scarecrow has is is gonna be attempting to. Take out Simon Saint. So Simon Saint is worried. He's got a rogue scarecrow who has betrayed him, uh, and then now he's got Peacekeeper One, who's who's running around intoxicated by this new toxin that the scarecrow has created. So Simon Saint doubles down by create by creating another Peacekeeper, Peacekeeper X, I guess, to take out Peacekeeper One. So it's like you almost got to keep notes as to how many you know the Peacekeepers going on here. Meanwhile, Batman's caught in the middle of this. Meanwhile, Oracle, her computer network has been taken over by an anti-Oracle, the origins of which were not really too clear, but that sort of played played itself out in the Alpha State issue of Free Comic Book Day. And so all these things are really coming to a head. And uh, ultimately... Uh, you know, Simon Saint, he's 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 one here where he's again not a lot happens in this issue. Uh, again, Peacekeeper One is trying to get, regain his sanity. Simon Saint is is has had one of his minions become Peacekeeper X, and, and meanwhile, Batman stumbles upon Oracle, and because they thought Batman was dead, so Cassandra Kane manages to take out you know Batman. I guess inadvertently ends up attacking Cassandra Kane because he's he's mentally compromised, and so Cassandra Kane is able to handle him easily because of that. And ultimately, Oracle gets him up to speed, updates him as to what's happening in Gotham, and and then Ghostmaker Ghostmaker fills Batman in on on where Harley is, and you know because the, they're teamed up with. Uh, Queen Ivy, who's got her root system under the under the city of Gotham, uh, ready to sort of p- 
compounds, you know, and there's the gardener and Harley and Queen Ivy and the ghost maker underneath Gotham, ready to, to pounce or to help Batman out when they need it. So uh, Batman asks Ghostmaker to come help him. So we got all these moving parts. I got to say as a compliment to Tinian here, I know a lot of people, I know this is a little bit, uh, one of the controversial takes there, there, there seems to be two camps when it comes to James Tinian's Batman. There's the people that like all his new characters that he's, he's, he's put forward. And there's guys like me who love it. I like all the new characters that James Tinian's put forward. I like the gardener. I like Ghostmaker. <laughs> I, I like the underbroker. I like Punchline. I think he's added something to the Batman, uh, Batman mythology moving forward. And I think this is where it pays dividends. I'm enjoying this story and I think it's paying off here. I like all these moving parts. I think Tinian's doing a good job, you know, putting all these pieces in play. I just hope the fact that he had to cut his story short uh, prior to the end, you know, he's going to be ending in November and then in December, Joshua Williamson takes over the writing. But I just hope that he's got enough room here to really tell the story that he wants to tell in bringing this, I think, a really exciting story to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I think he definitely has the end of Fear State. He, he's getting to finish Fear State. Um, if there's any threads in Fear State that he was planning um, on finishing, yeah, there may be something there. I mean, it was always planned that it was going to be this Fear State storyline, and at the end of the Fear State storyline, Bruce Wayne's going to leave Gotham, and we know that's, I think they're calling it Shadows of the Bat, is the next big storyline that's coming out of that, that, that was what James was uh, in, you know, a part of planning all that. So I, I don't think yeah. there's anything that he's not going to have time to, to finish. Um, and, and it's so interesting. So I, I'm subscribed to his Substack uh, recently, and he's been on Wednesdays putting out what he calls bat thoughts. And he's, he's given us the, the behind the scenes about his pitches for Batman and his pitches for 5g and, and all that. And, I've absolutely loved the I've been absolutely loving the ideas that he's put forth there, and in a way, it sort of diminishes this because obviously he didn't get to do what he wanted to do, right? When whether yeah. it's because DC is going to do you know other things with those characters, or they, they just decided it wasn't exactly the story he wanted. Like I don't understand. Like the, the, the story that he he pitched in my mind was was like perfect, and not to say what he's giving us is bad. But it just goes to show you that, you know, despite what a, a very talented writer wants to do, it's not always in their hands. I much rather would be reading the story that he was he was planning. And that's not just because he was planning on killing the Joker. Uh, and again, this was when 5G was going to happen and it was going to get a reboot. So everything he was supposed to be writing the final, you know, Batman story. So that yeah. frees up things that you can do that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Right. Like if you know the whole universe is going to restart dead people are going to be brought back to life. You can kill the Joker. You could kill Bruce Wayne for that matter. You can do, you can take some really big swings because you know, things are going to be reset, but there are other little ideas that were fantastic as well. Like Batman getting rid of Bruce Wayne, buying up the area that crime alley is in and building a hospital over it uh, and naming it after Alfred Pennyworth. That's something like, why hasn't Bruce done that? Why hasn't he bought up crime alley and gotten rid of it? You know, like, that, that makes sense to me. Finally getting rid of Arkham, you know, th these things make sense to me. So those ideas, it, it, like it's hard for me to read this stuff and not in the back of my mind be thinking about what might have been just because it sounds so fantastic. Yeah. I almost think after reading all this behind the scenes stuff lately for, for Tynan that 
man, maybe he's the one that needs to be editor-in-chief and be steering the ship over at DC. Not that he would be interested in the job at all, at least not right now, right? I mean, he had the chance to sign another exclusive and stay on Batman for another three years and chose to go and and write his own stuff and do the creator own. Yeah, but I, I would, I would just, I would just say though that I find it sort of ironic that he's talking so much about what his plans for Batman were just at a time where he's quit Batman and he's doing it for to to prop up his own his his own Substack. So I, I just find that a little bit uh, <laughs> ironic, but whatever. Well, and, and again, I mean, the, the stuff that he's been sharing is stuff that so before five G was canceled, he was supposed to come on. Uh, Batman and and bridge the gap, right? He was supposed to write from whatever it was, issue 83 or 86, whatever it was after Tom King left up until 100 when Ridley was going to take over next Batman, right? Next Batman and somebody else is under the cow. He was only supposed to have those, you know, 15 issues or so. And so that's what he's talking about. So again, this was supposed to be when 5G was uh, a thing. Um, so you know, you take it all with a grain of salt. Obviously, it wouldn't have worked anyway. Even if they greenlit everything he said, there would have had to have been changes anyway because 5G then got canceled. Um, so I, I, you know, and he, he's sharing it more just to show how, uh, you know, the process works and, and he's giving advice to other creators like, hey, this is what I ask. I ask for X because I think if I act, you know, I, I ask for the moon, I can then ask for everything I want so that I can get what I need, you know, cause he knows it's going to be somewhere in the middle. He's going to get some of the things he wants. He's not going to get everything. So ask for more than you need, but don't ask for so much that they go, you're crazy. We're not going to let you write the book, you know? So you've got to walk that, that balance. So it's been really, really interesting. Um, all that to say that what we're actually getting here in the actual story is okay. Um, maybe a little bit better than average because Tynan is, uh, a good writer, and so technically it's a good comic in terms of, um, you know, the the way the story flows and the pacing, and and some of the ideas are really really cool. I do agree with uh, with Rocky that most for the most part the new characters have been uh, a breath of fresh air. I'm not the biggest fan of Punchline, and I could definitely do without Clam Hunter. But when you talk about the Peacekeepers, when you talk about Ghostmaker and the gardener and the underbroker and all that, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I, I think it all works. Uh, what is interesting is, and Rocky mentioned it, it does feel like the pace is slowing down uh, a little bit here. Um, and it's sort of, I think, a little more noticeable, again, to point the finger at Future State. And Rocky and I have said, you know, ad nauseum about how probably would be better if we hadn't gotten that story. Not that everything is all hunky-dory in magistrate land in in future state, but they are in control, and they seem to have Gotham under their thumb and, and know what they're doing. In this story, and again, obviously, that's only a potential future, but this, this story is showing the cracks in the magistrate as they're trying to get off the ground. Things aren't necessarily going well for Simon Singh. They're not going that well for Peacekeeper 1 which is why we get this glimpse of Peacekeeper X here, yet another new uh, character. So, so overall, it's good. Um, I'm, I'm really curious to see how Future State reads as a cohesive story once everything is said and done, because we know from things that have been said and uh, previews that have come out that each of the Bat Family books is going to be telling sort of a different story. Um, Nightwing's going to be talking about the anti-Oracle. Harley Quinn's going to be dealing with the Poison Ivy stuff. Obviously, 
Batman's going to be the, you know, the main story dealing with Scarecrow. So how that all comes together and how it all uh, flows will be, uh, will be interesting to see. So that's to say that this fear state has been, has been okay. I did not enjoy this as much as I enjoyed the fear state alpha, but the fear state alpha, like we talked about, had, uh, you know, all the different storylines, bits and pieces of it. Um, so it felt a little more robust. This is a little more focused and it's more specifically more focused on Simon Saint and Scarecrow, which could be maybe my least, um, the, the part of the story that interests me the least. Hmm. So uh, there is a backup here from uh, Brandon Thomas, uh, Clown Hunter in DIY number one of three. Uh, I will take advantage of this, speaking of Brandon Thomas, to let everybody know that we did chat with Brandon Thomas and Daniel Samper, the two of the creative team for Future State Aquaman, which we thought was far and away the best Future State series. That came out yesterday, so you definitely should go and uh, check out that conversation. We talked to them about uh, Future State Aquaman and Brandon Thomas's excellent series, Nobles Mentioned. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the upcoming Aquaman Becoming. Then Daniel Sampier, obviously, Future State Aquaman, as well as Action Comics and whatever he has coming up next that uh, you know he's not able to talk about. Couldn't even tell if it was tell us if it was an event or uh, uh, an ongoing, but we're definitely <laughs> excited to, uh, to find it out. But, but anyway, Brandon Thomas here giving us clown hunter. And, you know, this is the character that just doesn't work for me. I am just not interested in the character. And even when people like Ed Brisson, who I'm a huge fan of, and he did the, the Batman secret files clown hunter. And now we get Brandon Thomas doing a, a clown hunter, which Brandon Thomas is definitely a good choice to do clown hunter since he has, you know, familial issues and Brandon Thomas, that's his, his bread and butter. Um, but yeah, I mean, this was okay. Uh, maybe, maybe the best of the clown hunter stuff that I've read so far, but not enough to make me care about the character. Um, and it ends with him. He's falling from a, a very, very high building where he's been tossed over the side, um, by scarecrow. But, uh, unfortunately I don't think he's going to hit the ground. Uh, and go away, which would be my preference. But uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you have a different outlook on it. Uh, uh, no, I actually, I actually don't. I actually, I'm not sure. I mean, uh, you know, you and I both know uh, we're we're fans of uh, Brandon Thomas, uh, but uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if he's got a lot to work here with uh, with Clown Hunter. Clown Hunter's parents were were killed by the Joker or by clowns or joker goons and and this is this is just the clown hunter fighting scarecrow who infects him with a toxin and this entire eight page story was just him hallucinating and while he's ultimately defeated and he's actually falling down and uh we had the same sort of story already we've seen this before this is not a new story this is this has been done before this is the fault of editorial this this should this should not be a backup we don't need this story this this adds nothing to the Clown Hunter mythology. It adds not, nothing. We, we don't know him any better than we did before. This is actually a waste. This is a waste of pages as far as I'm concerned. And I, that's not an insult to Brandon Thomas. It's just that we, we already know this story. We already know this about, uh, about Clown, Hunt, uh, Clown Hunter. And, and as I said, this is a new character. We need, we, we need stories that need that make him interesting, not ones that just repeat the same themes over and over again. This is once again, clown hunter, just being a jerk 
attacking people that he thinks is bad, looking ridiculous with his stupid haircut, his stupid bat with like his batarang stuck to the top of the bat. This is a dumb looking character. I have I don't like this character. This is this is a Jason Todd wannabe. Uh and uh good god, I I'm sorry. I just this is not a character I like. I don't like anything about this character. This is a character. This is one of those this should be the story of what this is the sto- this is a prime example of the type of vigilante in Gotham that should fail. This 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 is a kid that should be killed f- uh, because he's going to do something stupid, but he's going to, you know, it's so tropey what they're doing here. They want him it's so tropey. He's just he's just a punk kid. This kid is a killer. He's mentally ill, he's psychopathic, he's traumatized, he has PTSD. He's witnessed his parents killed. And no, but they're 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 gonna train him to be a vigilante. I mean I mean I know I'm saying that when I'm talking about the Bat family, and maybe that's par for the course. It's like everyone in the Bat family has a trauma. But this kid is this this is taken into the next extreme. If this kid uh, can can be a member of the Bat family, then you then you might as well sign up every member of Arkham Asylum. I mean, this is nonsense, but uh that's that's my <laughs> Yeah, and, and we've, we've talked before about the fact that he's got no training. He's not even like a big kid. He would yeah. have been killed, like you said. He would have been killed already, and he sh- and he should have been. Yeah, it's not not a good character. I agree. Yeah. Uh, all right, on to our next book. It's Green Lantern number six, Entanglement. Jeffrey Thorne is the writer. Uh, first half of the book is drawn by Marco Santucci. Second half is by Tom Rainey. Michael Atea does color. Simon Bolin on letters. Um. I got to say, I'm going to start with the Tom Rainey art in the second half. This is the best Tom Rainey art that we've had so far. I, I, at, at no point did I feel that Tom Rainey... The, the problem I've had with his art in the past is that there have been times where the proportions on the anatomy haven't worked for me. Like John uh, Stewart will look uh, like a normal John Stewart-looking rendered Green Lantern. And, and on one page and the following page, he looks like a pygmy or his head is way too big or it just... It pulls me out of the story. I didn't notice any of that here. Uh, and I, th- I think Tom Rainey's art is getting better. Uh, the colors by Michael Atea throughout are fantastic. Um, DeMarco Santucci art is, is fantastic as always. It's been interesting. This book is called Green Lantern uh, by Jeffrey Thorne. And, you know, we, we talked when it, when it first dropped about how Thorne doesn't like how Jordan called him the worst character in comic book history. I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. He said it. I'm not exaggerating that he said it, but I think that's a bit of an exaggeration. But our uh, what we wondered, what we were pondering was, who is Green Lantern? Who's going to be the star of this book? Is it Jon Stewart? Is it Simon Baz? Is it Jessica Cruz? Is it uh, Kelly, the, the Teen Lantern? Is it Joe Mullen? Is it, I mean, I guess it's not Sinestro because it says Green Lantern. But yet, so far, it's really been a Green Lantern core book, right? We're getting Jon Stewart stories, and Kilowog is there, and Joe Mullen is there, and Simon Bass is there, and, and Kelly is there. And who, who exactly is Green, Lan- Green Lantern? So I, I do find that to be uh, interesting. Uh, and Sinestro does show up quite a bit uh, in the book as well so far uh, up to this point. So it's clear that we're always going to dedicate half the book to Jon Stewart, who's Jeffrey Thorne's favorite character. He's over in the dark sector. They don't have any power uh, to their rings. And again, we saw in Future State how they were taking on aliens that they had no right taking on. We were just talking about Clown Hunter not being able to survive 
these guys shouldn't have been able to survive either against warlike races that are, you know, physically uh, and in every way stronger than than human beings. Um, but we know that Jeffrey Thorne is going to make sure that John Stewart comes out on top, and and John Stewart is the hero. And it's been a little less overt since the first issue, where it really felt like the first issue was really just the, the John Stewart show. Um, but again, he still is leading that you know that group of Green Lanterns that went over to the Dark Sector, and uh, and we'll see how that all plays out. Obviously, we're not going to get to the point where it was at with with Future State. They're all trapped over there, taking on the Coons, who they would have no chance of ever beating regardless of what Jeffrey Thorne writes in his, in his books. Um, but the first half has to do with Joe Mullen and, and the, we haven't gotten many clues uh, on who's behind this, this lantern, uh, the, the central power battery being destroyed. Um, and I, I'm ready to, to start moving along. It, it feels like we're just barely putting the pieces together. Um, and, and this, I don't want to say it felt like wasted space because like I said, it, it appears that Sinestro is going to be a pretty big part of Jeffrey Thorne's run going forward, especially based on what we get in the Green Lantern Annual this week. Um, so maybe that was why it was necessary. Uh, but again, not a fan of Teen Lantern and you know her flying off the handle here. Um, maybe Joe Mullen is really the star of, of the story or will be the star of the story. It's, it's, it's really too soon to say. And that's kind of the problem. That's that's kind of where I'm struggling, uh, because we're six issues in, and I feel like I should have an idea of where the story's going, and I don't have any idea. And maybe it goes back to the fact that basically Jeffrey Thorne is writing two books here. You know, the book is being split up every month into you know half of what's going on in the known area of space with the Green Lanterns being depowered, and the other half in the dark sector with with that team. And I, I don't know that it's working for me that well because it's making the story just drag on. Um, but I will say this, uh, when, when I heard Jeffrey Thorne was going to write Green Lantern and I, I read what he said about Hal Jordan, I was pretty worried if this was just going to be awful. Um, and I kind of felt the same way after the first issue. It got way better in the second issue and it's, it, it has maintained quality, especially in terms of artwork. Uh, the only thing I worry about is the pacing. Uh, and again, it goes to that idea of you're telling two stories in one book. Uh, so it's, I don't know, would I want Jeffrey Thorne to be writing two Green Lantern books? No, I would, I would not want that. Why don't you just give him the, the dark sector story and let him go and do that and get somebody else on Green Lantern to, to give us this story. Although I don't even want this story because like I said, I feel like we just did this. We just, just did this with Robert Venditti where all the lanterns lost their uh, their power uh, and couldn't charge up with the battery. So it, it just feels redundant. feels like we just had this story and I'm ready for something different um, in my Green Lantern books. I mean, we had the Robert Venditti, them losing power, and then we went to the Grant Morrison, which was weird, wild, and out there. So it's. I feel like it's been long enough. It's been long enough since we've had what I would consider a normal Green Lantern book, uh, and I would welcome the return of a normal Green Lantern book. What is it with these big publishers like not wanting to give us normal stories with green characters? Marvel's given yeah. us Immortal <laughs> Hulk for a number of years now and then we get done with that and now we're launching into a Donny Cates story where he's like taking him out to space and it's like Cosmic Hulk. 
Yeah. Can I just get normal? Can I get normal Incredible Hulk stories? Can I get normal Green Lantern stories? I'm sure people are listening, going, "God, Jay, shut up! What the hell's normal, right? This is comic yeah. books." But I mean, <laughs> stories that haven't been told two years ago. You know, lanterns whose power rings don't work. Yeah, we just had that story. Thanks. Uh, can I? I just need something new. So, anyway, maybe your mileage might vary, Rocky. Maybe you're enjoying this more than me. What did you think? Well, I, I I do think that on the surface, this this issue seemed a little bit redundant at first because, uh, because at least the first half that dealt with Joe uh, Joe Mullen uh, confronting Sinestro, wanting to essentially rescue or retrieve Teen Lantern. What's interesting about that is that we had the previous issue where we already saw the perspective of Teen Lantern, who uh, uh, attempted to attack Sinestro on New Karagar, New Karagar, and ultimately was stopped by uh stopped by uh Jessica Cruz who is of course the a new member of the Sinestro Corps. So that's interesting. Now what I, I think where we get some benefit here with Joe Mullen talking to Sinestro is that it sort of fills in the blanks because we know that something's going on in the dark sector with John uh Stewart and of course the the thousand lanterns that are struggling, battling against, you know, losing all their rings going out and losing three hundred of them have been wiped out and there's only seven hundred remaining and they're struggling. Joe Mullen uh w- in her conversation with Sinestro, it's it's established through their conversation that Sinestro is utilizing the Sinestro Corps to sort of fill in the gaps that have been created now that the Green Lanterns have, a, a, at least a thousand of them, have left uh, the, the central Milky Way galaxy. And so there's a lot of gaps that need to be filled in. And those gaps are being filled in, number one, by the United Order of the United Planets, but also Sinestro Corps uh, through, because... Uh, Interestingly enough, Sinestro clearly establishes here that the, he joined the United Planets. I thought they did not join the United Planets, but it seems to me, I, I guess I misremembered that because he's actually working in conjunction with the United Planets. And so the, the Sinestro Corps very clearly is filling in the gaps that were normally filled in by the Green Lanterns. So that's interesting. So we're establishing sort of like the geopolitical sort of system between the United Order and the Sinestro Corps and what's left of the Green Lantern Corps in the mainstream universe and then we got this dark sector where john stewart is where he's uh you know he's dealing with this this i guess this alien race that wants to take over and retrieve all these rings and uh the only thing you know so other than that I, i thought that i thought that could have been established in a previous issue i don't know if we needed that full half issue to have that conversation with Joe Mullen. But I think you touched upon something, Jace, that is significant. And that is, I think that there is, there is an intention here to sort of prop up Joe Mullen to give her more attention. And I do think Jeffrey Thorne is doing a very good job. And you alluded to it of get, giving me a sense that, you know, sometimes I think this is a story about Jon Stewart. Then it's Joe Mullen. Then we're getting Teen Lantern. Then we're getting the the larger core in general. This is this does in fact feel like a Green Lantern core book as opposed to a Green Lantern per se. This is all of them. This is very much a Green Lantern core book. And in that respect, I'm getting a good sense that this is very much a core, and we're it's not a it's not a specific focus on one particular player. I will draw people's attention, readers' attention at the very end. Uh, we get introduced to a person by the name of Lonar from New Genesis, and he is he is right back to the day, I believe, of Jack Kirby. Uh, Lonar from New Genesis, he is a new god. It's interesting that he shows up here 
why is he here? He says, I'm here to watch you save the universe or destroy it one way or the other. So it's interesting uh, what role will Loner play. If you recall in Future State Green Lantern, we had somebody that looked like Orion show up, but ultimately wasn't Orion. And so... Uh, again, the the fact that we're aware of what happens in future state, we kind of know what the outcome of this story is going to be. So it's sort of like, part of me feels like, well, let's just get to it already. On the other hand, Jeffrey Thorne, Jeffrey Thorne has built, I think, a decent narrative here, uh, albeit it perhaps sort of repeats some of the plot beats that we've seen in previous Green Lantern storylines, as you've already said. So, you know, the jury will still be out. We'll see how he can nail the landing on this. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with it taking so long. Is he ever going to get a chance to get to the ending? I guess we'll see. Uh, I did mention we also have another Green Lantern book this week, uh, Yellow Lantern Story. Uh, It's Green Lantern Annual, Green Lantern 2021 Annual Number 1 from writer Ryan Caddy. Simon Basri does the art on pages 1 to 23 and then 37 through 40. Tom Derenek gives us the art on 24 through 36. Hi-Fi is the colorist. Rob Lee is letters. And this is basically a continuation of the story that we got in Future State Green Lantern on the space station uh, where Jessica Cruz took out the three other Yellow Lanterns. Same creative team. Um, and then, you know, took a yellow lantern ring after it was offered, after the ring presented itself to her and said, hey, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, have the ability to um, instill great fear. And so she, I, I mean, this picks up right where that left off. She flies to New Krugar. She's got the three uh, yellow lanterns in, in custody and, and confronts Sinestro. Um, I don't know that I knew at the time. I mean, it was in a future state book. I just assumed that that was a future state story as well, that that was a story that was taking place in the future. Yeah. But according to what we read here, it's actually Jessica <laughs> Cruz was, you know, out in deep space and her ring started to fail because the central battery blew up and she went to that station and, and that was kind of her refuge. Um, so that part of the future state Green Lantern uh, series didn't actually happen in the future which, I mean, I would have to go back and read it, but I don't know that there was any clues. I don't recall any clues saying that that was the case. So I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm nitpicking here, but you know, I get, got halfway through this and I started thinking, oh, yeah, so I guess that future state story wasn't really future state. Um, whether or not Jessica Cruz is a good choice to be in the Yellow Lanterns, I don't know. I will say that Ryan Caddy gives her a very authentic voice. It, it, this feels like Jessica Cruz. It feels like the Jessica Cruz that we know and love. Um, it's an interesting idea being that Jessica, you know, when she first obtained a power ring was uh, struggling with cripple, uh, crippling agoraphobia. She was, her whole life was controlled by fear. She had so much anxiety and was so scared of, of the world around her. She couldn't even leave her house. So the idea that somebody like that would have the ability to then go to the other extreme and instill fear in people is interesting, as well as the fact that she is intimately familiar with what it feels like to have fear, to be influenced by fear, to have fear control your life. That aspect of it makes her a perfect choice for uh, a yellow lantern. And I wonder, and this is pure speculation, I have no evidence to back this up, 
whatsoever. You wonder if Sinestro at some point might be taken off the table and Jessica Cruz would then become the leader of the the Yellow Lantern. Like that seems like a very DC editorial thing to do. <laughs> yeah. um, clearly Jessica is very capable with a you know with a yellow ring um, on her hand as she she even defeats uh, Lysa, you know, who's one of the most powerful Yellow Lanterns. So uh, I enjoyed the story. Uh, I feel like it's more set up than anything else, you know, showing us that uh, Jessica is very capable of wielding a Yellow Lantern ring, showing us that, you know, Sinestro recognizes that um, and maybe setting up something, a future storyline to come along where, where Jessica takes over the, the Yellow Lanterns, you know, much like Supergirl at one point was in charge of the, the Red Lantern Corps. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, the only thing I didn't like about the story, uh, the interaction between Hal Jordan and, and Jessica didn't quite work for me. I felt like Hal came across as, uh, I don't know, overly antagonistic. Uh, I just don't think he necessarily would. I think he's, when it comes to Jessica and knowing her, her lack of experience when it comes to, you know, somebody like him, one of the most experienced that he would have had a little softer touch. Um, but overall, I enjoyed the issue. Obviously, the color work with a lot of yellow, um, you know, it's to be expected. Uh, and I didn't, I even thought that the, the two different artists, their styles are close enough together that it didn't really uh, take me out of the story. Although I definitely enjoyed the Simon Bosry art more than the Tom Derenick art, uh, especially that last, the last splash page with Jessica wielding the yellow lantern and charging up her ring. Uh, thought it was thought it was pretty solid. So overall, good story. If you're a Jessica Cruz fan, you'll probably want to pick this up because, like I said, it's going to definitely come into play with her uh, upcoming stories, and I wouldn't be surprised to see her take over the Yellow Lantern Corps here pretty quick. So I guess we'll see. What do you think, Rocky? It, it was good. I, I like that it's. Uh, I, I like that they're playing with the concept of fear a little bit. I, I think, and that the good thing about making. Uh, of of taking Jessica Cruz and exploring the good side of fear because fear does have a good side fear has saved lives the fear instinct is the only reason why the human race exists fear is a healthy instinct and those that people people that master their fear don't ignore it they know how to read their fear they know how to read fear in others that's what makes Sinestro so effective he can sense fear he can read it he knows his own fear he knows how to work through it Fear is an instinct that can save your life and the lives of others. You got to distinguish between fear and anxiety. What Jessica Cruz initially had before before she became a Green Lantern, she had a lot of anxiety and fear. And you know, it's 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 that old you know it's that old example that you know uh, fear is an instinct that can save your life. You know, uh, uh, fear that prevents you from going into a dark alley when you see two two very dangerous looking men in the alley that will save your life anxiety is if you never go into any back alley i mean one will debilitate you for the rest of your life one will save your life you got to distinguish between those two and i think where where i think moving forward having jessica cruz be the hero con controlling fear and she even alludes to it here where one day she might even she even 
she even hints at it. Maybe one day she'll take over for Sinestro. Like if, if Sinestro gets out of hand, she'll be there to stop him as well. She, it's Jessica Cruz's reading of the fear of the people on the ship that she helps, the spaceship that she helps, the way that she utilizes the the reading and understanding of fear, figuring out that there that 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 one of the some of the members on the ship were in fact uh, smugglers i mean i mean it's interesting how writer ryan caddy utilizes the the approach to fear to sort of drive home the idea that you know there is something to say that that willpower is all good for a for a green lantern ring but that do not dismiss fear as something that can be very helpful to save lives and i kind of like that and i think it adds to the mythology of the Green Lantern uh, mythology moving forward, and not that it hasn't already been there with Sinestro. That's, uh, but I like the fact that because Jessica Cruz is someone that was always terrified and filled with anxiety, the fact that she can now master that and distinguish between anxiety and fear moving forward, she's always been a character that I think, starting with with Justice League uh, Odyssey, the way she overcame her fear when she was battling Darkseid in the pages of Justice League Odyssey, which was the one Justice League title that nobody read, unfortunately, but was fantastic, the, hands down, the best Justice League title between, well... It, it Justice League Dark was pretty good too, but Justice League Odyssey and Justice League Dark were both very good titles, superior even to Justice the Snyder's Justice League, if I do say so in my own also oh humble opinion. But in any event, I I, I like this. This was forty pages long. It it only needed to be twenty pages long. This was too long, but uh, nonetheless, it did it did certainly made its point. Yeah, I don't know that it. 20 pages, but yeah, 40, it did feel a little long, um, maybe 30 might have worked, but uh, anyway, on to the next book, uh, United Order Part 4, Justice League number 67 from writer Brian Michael Bendis, pencils by Phil Hester, inks by Eric Gapster, colors by Hi-Fi, letters by Josh Reed. Oh man, where to start? Um, <laughs> I hated this. I really didn't like it. It was not for me. Um uh, Phil Hester is a, a talented artist. There's no doubt. He's a great storyteller. But his the way he draws sharp angles on things, and I've said it before, it just doesn't work for me for superhero stuff. Crime noir stuff, horror stuff, slice of life, I think it works well. Um, but it just doesn't work for me on, on superhero stuff. And even the way he draws Lois Lane, I just don't care for. She's supposed to be a beautiful woman, and she looks somewhat... I don't know, like a troll or something. Like I just, it's horrible. I, she looks so terrible. It's the next page if you, uh, if you keep scrolling a little more. Yeah, right there. She looks horrible. What's wrong with her calves? I just, uh, yeah, don't like it. Um, and you know, this whole idea of of Lois Lane having a brother and his name. She, she calls him up, calls him Leo. Already knew she had a brother, but yet we've never like this. I, and I'm not going to go into a whole big thing because I've talked about it before. Yeah. Uh, about how Bendis doesn't care about DC history, doesn't care about continuity. He's just going to do what he wants to do. And I feel like it's disrespectful um, to to put you know to retcon something in like like Lois always knew she had a brother, but yet she's never mentioned it to Clark. She's never mentioned it. No, that's 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 diminishing the relationship and trust, and, and really bothers me that Bendis comp- continues to shit on the marriage and, and relationship and level of trust that Lois and Clark have. It, it's the, it's my biggest complaint about his writing. I just absolutely hate it. Um, 
And then on top of that, here's this huge planetary threat that he's tried to, to come up with, right? Like Rogal Czar, the argument could be made that that character fell flat. It was supposed to be this great, awesome character. The next, quote unquote, doomsday. It did fall flat. Nobody, nobody cared. Yeah. So then Bendis tries it again with Sinmar Utopica. Guess what? He swung and missed again. Nobody cares about this character. The character's boring. The motivation of the character doesn't make any sense. It's worse than a mustache twirling villain who at least, you know, ha, 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 I want to rule the world. I want to rule the galaxy. No, the motivation literally makes no sense. Wait, you, you want to be inspired by Superman? Your world gives you all this power and you turn evil? It, it, it makes no sense. And then Bendis has written himself into a corner and can't figure out how after Utopica has come to Earth and beat the Justice League and destroyed the Hall of Justice, how are we going to defeat him? He's beating the crap out of everybody. Oh, we'll just get out the old Phantom Zone projector and shoot him into the Phantom Zone. Again, again. That's been you like the fourth time in a storyline that Bendis has used the yeah, Phantom Zone projector. That's, how, that's what you did with Rokol Czar. Unbelievable. You have no other ideas? Exactly. It's yeah, ridiculous. Uh, just lazy, lazy writing. Really bad. Um, don't read this. It's a waste of your time unless you're a huge Bendis fan and, and love that everybody oh. has to uh, say something. If they're in the panel, they have to have a word balloon. Uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's just not working for me, man. I really, really dislike this. And we didn't even have the David Marquez art to make me feel like, well, at least uh, we had some nice looking art to look at. No, um, really, really bad. Didn't like it. Didn't work for me. I don't. I don't know what else to say. Maybe you feel differently, Rocky. Doesn't sound. Doesn't sound like that's the case. Uh, no. Uh, I didn't. Uh, in in fact. Uh, although, well, okay. Let's focus on the positive here. I. I. There. There. What stands out here is the the art. There are at least six straight full double page spreads, uh, by the artist here. Uh, what's the artist's name again? Phil Hester. Phil Hester, yeah. So, I mean, I, unfortunately, I can't show them all here, but there's at least, I mean, one, two, three, four, five, five straight double-page spreads showing the action, and F Phil Hester does an admirable job showing the action here. I want to give him some compliments here. Look, uh, maybe his style isn't for everyone, but he does show a lot of action. There's definitely a lot of dialogue there, but that's that's not Phil Hester's fault. He does... He's at the top of his game. He gives his best in the art here. And I think the colorist does its job too. I mean, this, this you know, I think I did, I did get a sense of there was a lot of action, a lot of kinetic energy going on. Uh, there was a lot at stake. Uh, the Hall of Justice was destroyed. I mean, there's, there's a lot of bright colors and action here. So I want to give him kudos, uh, kudos for that. And, you know, it's not Phil Hester's fault that I don't. I I think that Sinmar Utopica is a joke of a character. He just is because he. We don't. We don't. We still really don't know. I mean, the motivations for Sinmar Utopica are ridiculous. We we still really don't know what they are. They don't make any sense. They don't make any sense. I mean, this is embarrassing. I mean, good law. This is like, this is, kindergarten school level motivation for Sinmar Utopica. He wants to take over the earth and as and then he last issue he contacted his home planet he wants to offer up the earth to his own planet 
so that he can get back into good graces with his own planet and his own planet is, is already has already shunned him anyway and they don't care about what he does just absolute nonsense <clears throat> this <clears throat> this is a I'm sorry, this is embarrassing, absolutely embarrassing that um, uh, Bendis is phoning this in. This is just absolutely embarrassing. Also, we have Leonardo Lane. Leonardo Lane. You know, I mean, uh, by the way, I mean, for those who don't know, every woman in Superman's life has the initials LL, Lana Lang, Lois Lane. So now, why would you need to have a brother that Lois Lane's brother? Why does it need to be a Leonardo Lane? I, I guess that's how Bendis figures that mythology works with Superman. It doesn't. Uh, not, not, it's only the women in his life, uh, not, not his brother-in-laws. Uh, I agree with you 100%. What, uh, this Leonardo Lane out of the blue, Lois Lane talking to him as if this is normal, it's not. She doesn't have a brother. If she has a brother, how does she know? Why, this should have been something that was built up. This should have been done by a different writer. This should, they should have been, this should have been an epic reveal. This should have been something that would, that was a result of the multiversal madness that maybe came out after a crisis that somehow, what, what's different about this universe, multiverse? Lois Lane has a brother. Well, that's kind of a big deal, but it isn't a big deal now. Um, everything about this is so underwhelming. It, it, it just, it's it's so disappointing. It's so disappointing. And all uh, at the end, at the end of this, we have yet another attack. We have Leonardo being attacked again by these death strokes. These wannabe death strokes, and because he, as far as we know, we thought we thought Damon Rose, i.e. Leonardo Lane, we thought that he worked for uh, Leviathan, but I guess he doesn't. But now. He's now attacked again by not just one copy or clone of Deathstroke, but now multiple copies of Deathstroke. Bendis is repeating again. He repeats his plot points. When he can't come up with an idea, it's either a dumb idea or it's a repeat of a plot. But I, I don't know. This is just I, just, I just want him off this book, uh, to be honest. Uh, but no, this this is just plain awful. I, I, I just can't say... It's hard for me to find anything nice about this Justice League, but uh, I just want him. I just want him gone at this point. I just want him gone because this is not making any sense. His Leviathan is a joke. His checkmate is a, is is nonsensical. This is going nowhere. Uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, you and I try to be diplomatic on this, and you know, I'm I'm actually I'm constantly being trying to be cautious with my words so as to not. <laughs> say anything too negative but obviously i did in any event it, this is a significant miss for me fortunately we have justice league dark as the backup yeah i mean you wonder i mean bendis was again i was never a big fan of of him um certainly a decompressed storyline but he had a legion of fans and you you wonder like does his does his style just not suit dc Should, did he not does he not know the dc characters well enough should he have stayed at marvel should he just stick to his, you know, his creator-owned stuff? I don't know what the answer is, but the answer is not this. <laughs> it's not Justice League 67 because it, it wasn't very good. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, uh, you know, we've been singing the praises of Justice League Dark throughout uh, by writer Ram V. Sumat Kumar is the artist. Ramulu Fajardo Jr. is the colorist. And Rob Lee does the letters. And that's been pretty solid. And it's been a saving grace. But this has been my least favorite uh, of the Justice League Dark and maybe it's because 
we only got like six pages of it. Um, yeah. So it was like nothing, nothing happened. We didn't get much of it. Um, the only, in my mind, best part of it was right at the end with uh, Zatanna telling Merlin crackle and burn uh, with a, a cool looking uh, panel there. But, but other than that, I don't know. It just, it just felt meh to me. Um, and maybe it's because it's taking so long to get there, the story to really hit some, some story beats because, uh, because Ramvi does only have six or eight pages, every issue, it's starting to feel like it's dragging as opposed to, you know, it would be going three times as fast if it was in its own, you know, regular monthly book. So, um, I, I can't completely fault the, the creative team for the fact that this feels like the pacing isn't, um, isn't very good. I mean, they're, they're very much restricted by page space here. They're getting six to eight pages a, a month. And it's just, it's not enough to, to give us a narrative that feels like it's moving along at, at a necessary speed. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a little tough for me this, uh, this month. And what do you think, Rocky? Well, it's too bad too, because I mean, what's happening here in Justice League Dark now is that all the undead, all of the dead warriors, former, you know, the dead warriors of Atlantis have been risen from the dead by Merlin and they're attacking Justice League Dark. And Ragman is working alongside Zatanna. And we know that Zatanna, every time she uses her powers, her magical powers, she she becomes that much closer to the upside down man of, of that we know from, from the witching hour from last year of, of gaining control over her. And so, so much is at stake. But this is fairly epic. I mean, the dead of Atlantis are attacking, uh, controlled by Merlin, taking on Justice League Dark. That sounds epic to me. Uh, but no, we got to be subjected to 20 pages of Sunmar Utopica attacking for like the fourth issue in a row, only to be sent to the Phantom Zone again because he was already sent once already in the pages of Superman. This is ridiculous. But I mean, this is, you know, so we're, we're getting few pages, fewer pages of the story that is actually epic and that we're actually something is actually at stake. Who, who really cares that the Hall of Justice is destroyed again? You know, I don't care. Uh, I'm sorry, but this is a much better story now. Unfortunately, as you said, I mean, not only so much can happen here, but you, when you think of what the, the, these six pages represent of Justice League Dark, I mean, Aquaman commanding all these sharks to attack Merlin. We got the undead of uh, Sumat, uh, Sumat Kumar here. He's restricted on pages. I would, I mean, give Sumat Kumar, the artist, give him a double page spread so he can show the, the, the undead of Atlantis attacking Justice League Dark. Let him show off his talents. We had a couple of double page spreads in the past with him. I mean, it, it's... This is a really this is a good story and I, and I really hope that they're going to they're going to be collecting Ram V's Justice League Dark backup stories here. I hope they're going to be collecting them in a in a in a in a trade just like they're collecting the backup Wonder Woman stories uh with uh with with this with the little wonder wonder girl or whatever uh the pages of wonder woman whatever the hell that is i mean if they're going to do it for wonder girl i hope they're going to do the same here for ram v's backup here of justice league dark because it, it deserves it. it it really does uh 
I mean, I, I'm, I'm loving it. I love the stakes that are in play here at Justice League Dark because Merlin is taking over, you know, he's taken over the magical realms and we know how that ends with Future State and we know that the demon uh, can possibly change the future because he knows what's, he, you know, because he's, because of the nature of the type of creature he is, the past is always movable as is the future and so hopefully that the future state that we know might come to pass might not come to pass and... And I got to say, I want to give Sumit Kumar a credit here. I love how he has sort of, he creates an air bubble around Ragman and Zatanna. And, uh, and so John that they Constantine. Can, yeah, and John Constantine and how they can breathe underwater and just how they, uh, just the, the, the battle sequences and, and, the, and, and even the colorist. I'm not sure who the, who's the colorist on the backup here. Great job on the color as well. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure who did the colors. I closed it. Yeah, that's all right, but uh, it's, it's uh, but yeah, I mean, just just great. I mean, I I mean the the look on Zatanna's face, you know, I mean, just you know, crackle and burn as she looks at Merlin. I mean, she's kick ass. I mean, we we see none of that type of intensity. Uh, I feel none of that when I'm when I'm reading the Justice League main proper book, and I mean, I just it's really sad when a backup absolutely decimates. I mean, you want to talk about crackle and burn? Uh, it's almost as if that's what Zatanna did to the main, main, main story. <laughs> well, anyway, I mean, in in fewer pages, uh, yeah. you know, a third, a third of the page. It's Ramulo Hardo Jr. that does the yeah. one of your favorites. Uh, yeah, one of my favorite colors for Jordo Jr. Man, he's the guy. Yeah. He's the man. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next up, we have uh, three Suicide Squad books in a row. Uh, like I said <laughs> earlier, just. I like Suicide Squad, but but really, do we need three Suicide Squad books in one week? I guess we're getting them whether we need them or not. So wow. uh, Suicide Squad number seven, Hellbound, Robbie Thompson on script, Eduardo Pansica on pencils, Julio Ferreira on inks, Marcelo Mayala does the colors, Wes Abbott does the letters. Uh, uh, again, uh, it seems like I say this a lot. I'm not the biggest Ambush Bug fan. Um, I don't know. With DC, I, I feel like, unlike Marvel where um, – I feel like I either like the character or I'm neutral. DC has far more characters where I'm like, I love DC characters. There's very few that are in the middle or I, I actively don't like them. I, I don't read anything they're in. Ambush Bug is one of those. And I know I'm in the minority because people seem to love Ambush Bug, but yet <laughs> despite all the love of Ambush Bug, whenever he has his own title, it never really sells that, that well. So it's like people like to say they love Ambush Bug, but when it comes to actually buying a title. Eh. So it's an interesting narrative, I guess, because ambush bug, much like Deadpool and the argument could be made that ambush bug was Deadpool before Deadpool was Deadpool. Cause he breaks the fourth wall and he's talking about different stuff, but not only is he talking about stuff that's happening in the issue, he's talking about stuff that's going to happen in future issues. <laughs> yeah. So it's really sort of strange. And I have to imagine that Robbie Thompson had a hell of a lot of fun writing and scripting this issue uh, because you just, you get that feeling. It comes across in, in the story. Um, as, as far as what's actually happening, well, you know, I, I've, we all know I'm not an Amanda Waller fan. Like, you know, you, she's top of the list of, of characters that I dislike. I, I've talked about how I think she's tropey. I think she's offensive. I, I think she needs to go away and uh, needs to be replaced by, uh, you know, a strong female black character uh, who, you know, isn't that, that stereotype of 
you know, grew up poor. And at least she's not overweight anymore. Um, but, you know, grew up poor and had to pull herself up by her bootstraps and blah, 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 right? It's just, it, it's, it's old and it's tired at this point. But one thing's for sure is that she is a villain at this point. There's no other way to look at her. And it, it's never more so apparent than in this issue. You know, it's one thing to try to say that the ends justify the means and using uh, villains and implanting them, you know, what used to be a bracelet on their wrist that would blow their arm off in order to control them. And now it's a, you know, at least they could survive that if they lost an arm, but now it's, you know, an explosive in, in their neck or even nanites throughout their blood. So if they're blown up, you know, their whole body explodes. And I mean, there's no other way to put it. It's murder. Um, and I don't care that these are villains they're out there risking their lives for, for the mission in, in terms of, Hey, I'm going to have a shorter sentence. Um, but she's just a cold blooded, unrepentant killer at this point. You want to talk about a psychopath? Uh, you know, I, I'd much rather hang out with clown hunter than Amanda Waller at this point. He seems much more stable than her. Um, she's just an out and out scumbag at this <laughs> point. Uh, no redeeming qualities. Yeah, she is. And I, I hope that she gets her comeuppance and DC just takes her off the table for a while. And maybe maybe there's a story to be told there, a redemption story with Amanda Waller, and you can you could soften her in in a way because I think she is too hard edge. And I, I, I get like that's her thing, right? She's the wall and she has no uh, uh, compromise in her. But I think that makes her a, a very flat character, a very two dimensional character. I can't relate to Amanda Waller. All I see when I see here is is an unlikable, unrepentant character who's so arrogant and thinks she knows better than everybody else that uh, – and I realize I just said arrogant and then you know, repeated it by explaining what arrogant was. But uh, you know, it's like <laughs> if, you, if you are that arrogant, you're going to make mistakes because you're not going to be able to see the, the flaws in your plan or in your thinking – um, and, and that ultimately will probably be Amanda Waller's downfall. You, you have to have empathy or compassion just as a human being at some point and not just because people will like you and want to be around you. Nobody likes Amanda Waller. Nobody wants to be around her, but in terms of, of politically, you know, you, you need to have that ability to empathize and to, to have emotion and, and have friends um, because like it or not, Amanda Waller, you live in a society and yeah, you get to tell people what to do, but at some point there's somebody above you. Uh, and, and this is the problem, right? This is the hubris right now of Amanda Waller. She acts with impunity as if she knows better than anybody on planet earth, anybody in our, our whole uh, corner of the multiverse or, or all the multiverses. She knows best. She's setting herself up as 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 infallible, as you know, perfect decision making, perfect intelligence, like almost like a god who can do no wrong. Well, guess what, Amanda Waller, you are no god. Uh, and uh, again, I hope DC is setting up for a big fall. And if maybe in the hands of the right writer, I definitely have my doubts, but maybe in the hands of the right writer, there can be a redemptive arc for Amanda Waller, uh, and and you know, she won't be so unlikable and such a two dimensional character. Um, but in, in my mind, that's the point of this issue. Uh, other than Robbie Thompson getting to have a lot of fun with Ambush Bug, uh, nobody can have any doubts that, uh, you know, and I'm not saying, hey, no, 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 I was right. But I don't think anybody can read this issue and 
and say that I wasn't right by saying Amanda Waller is an out and out villain these days. There's no other way to put it. And when we get to the Suicide Squad annual, it only reinforces that, at least in my mind. Um, as far as the action goes, I mean, it, I, I love that Robbie Thompson brings that humor and balances it with the action. Um, and, and the other thing that Thompson is doing very well is he's tying his Suicide Squad into a lot of other corners of the DC universe. Now, whether DC did that to, to capitalize on the recent DC uh, Suicide Squad movie uh, and, and to get people you know excited about Shazam or Teen Titans Academy or, or whatever, I don't know. But we definitely have seen where uh, the Suicide Squad book has tied into other things. You know, uh, Red X showed up, Teen Titans Academy uh, characters showed up, and now we here we have um, the Suicide Squad going to, to hell uh, to try to get the Rock of Eternity, which ties into the Shazam book. So, um, yeah, it's it. I do like that that continuity is is still a thing over at DC. So, what did you think, Rocky? Are you still digging Suicide Squad? Uh, well, I, I am. I will agree that uh, one thing about Amanda Waller is that I don't think she she, she one of the I think misses that they that DC. Where they have they haven't quite handled her very well because she doesn't seem to have anyone above her. She really is. She seems to be above the U.S. government. Uh, she she really does. Uh, I mean, and by the way, we probably should have reviewed Suicide Squad Annual first before issue seven because <laughs> in Suicide yeah. Suicide Squad right. seven here, I mean, Superboy's you know the secrets of who Superboy really is is revealed in the annual, and that comes through here, and he's actually. Uh, spoiler alert! He's actually Match. He's ac he is actually a clone, uh, uh, which is uh, the clone known as Match. Which is I think that's from a new. Isn't that a new Fifty Two storyline or something? Yeah, but, it was Superboy number forty three. Yeah, I, something um, like that. Matt yeah. I think it might even yeah. be sort of like the oh, Bizarro oh. version of, of 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 Connor Kent. But yeah, uh, I think it might even have been before. Uh, yeah, it was before. Um, before the new Fifty Two. Before New Fifty Two, yeah, uh, it, was, it was all the way back in the the Teen Titans Superboy days. series where he, you know, he had the um, the leather jacket. Ah, uh, yes, and the, and the long and the long hair, the yeah. Metropolis kid. Uh, yeah, yeah. Night, uh, Superboy thirty five was his first appearance, according to this, uh, January nineteen ninety seven. Created by Ron Mars was the writer, oh, and well, Ramon good. Bernardo was the artist. Good. Well, it's uh, I do like here what uh, writer Robbie Thompson is is doing. He's uh, clearly this new Superboy, this or this new sup slash Superman. This match, he's he's the you know it's a it's a new it's essentially now we know it's a new character and he's developing it. And this is a man. Amanda Waller so happy. She's got her own Superboy slash. She's got her own Superman. Uh, but one of the things that detracts from Amanda Waller here, and I hope Robbie Thompson gets more of a handle on it, is that Amanda Waller. We know, you know, apparently her motivation is she wants to have her own earth. She wants to have her own earth. She wants to be able to save her own earth. But yet, I, I don't quite buy into that motivation. She's still, like you said, she's still kind of, she's almost psychopathic, like in a way. She's, she doesn't really care about anybody. She doesn't really seem to have a motivation other than herself. Why does she want to find her own earth? If her motivation is to save her own earth, which... She's all happy. We know from Future State that she sets up Match to oh, Superboy to be the Superman of Earth Three. We know that's the end game here. That's what happens. We know that. We already know that from Future State. And then, so is that the end game? So Amanda Waller, she's 
she's a complete bitch. Uh, she, she's a killer. She blows, she explodes heads. If you don't listen to her, she's a, she's completely unlikable. She wants to find Rick Flagg to kill him or to control him. Uh, she's just a complete bitch, but in the end, she wants to be a hero to Earth 3 by giving them a Superman. It just doesn't really add up to me. It seems inconsistent. None of this really adds up. Don't get me wrong. It kind of makes for a fun story because I like I like Suicide Squad stories. So I like I like when heads getting blown up here and there, and I I like the character dynamics, the interaction between the Peacemaker and the Superboy and the and the Talon and the Chukokabra and the, and <laughs> or, and so it's fun. And I, I liked Ambush Bug here. I thought it was interesting. It's revealed here that in fact that uh, Talon is actually working for Rick Flag. So and Amanda Waller seems to be. Uh, she seems to know what Rick Flay, what uh, Talon is up to. She 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 says that Talon Talon she thinks that Talon is pretending to be sick from the multiversal sickness from traveling between worlds, and so she knows that Talon is faking it. But she doesn't seem to know that Talon is working for Rick Flag, um, and she thinks actually that Peacemaker is really working for Rick Flag. So she she's really hoping to push Peacemaker to the brink. So Peacemaker is going to eventually see through, see that she's got, that her way is the best way and eventually she'll betray Rick Flagg and come back to her. That seems to be her twisted way of thinking. Amanda Waller seems to be schizophrenic in her thinking and I'm not really sure what Robbie Thompson, he he seems to be scripting a different Amanda Waller at different scenes here uh, and it I'm, I'm not sure if I quite got a handle on it but in any event... Ambush Bug is here, by the way, because they need a new teleporter. Uh, we've joked before. I mean, it's a kind of a trope how the, the Suicide Squad goes through teleporters like uh, like most of us go through breath. I mean, I mean, it's they always end up getting killed. And Ambush Bug is a, is is just really good at teleporting, even though they don't technically need one now. They can mechanically teleport. But he's there. He's good comedic relief. Um, uh, it's revealed here that Nocturna is from another Earth. That's interesting. She's not from uh, our Earth. So Bloodsport, re- Bloodsport did in fact. Uh, he not only retrieved uh, the, uh, the 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 Black Siren, the the Black Canary from Earth three, but also Nocturna is from another Earth. So Amanda Waller, we now know that she's been recruiting members for a while now from other Earths. So. You know that's I get that's interesting, and maybe we're gonna get some more uh, out of that at the end here. Wallace sends the the Suicide Squad to the Rock of Eternity, to ultimately where they end up confronting the Hell Squad, which consists of Slipknot and Savant and a number of other characters, and. Uh, where this is going to go, I'm not sure. I find it interesting that they might, if they're going to be fighting a suicide squad that actually exists in hell, it's interesting that they might be fighting suicide squad members that have previously been killed because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of them. <laughs> so I find that interesting. So Robbie Thompson has a lot of interesting ideas that he's playing with. The humor was fun here with Ambush Buggy. did a good job there. Uh, Eduardo Panzica on the art, I thought was the art was excellent. I, I love the art. Um, Again, I share your I share your comments about Amanda Waller. I I kind of love I I love to hate her, but I'm wondering now if her motivation is a little bit lost on me. She seems a little bit schizophrenic in her motivation. I'm not quite seeing the logic of it. I mean, even even with characters like the Joker, I can understand some insane logic with an insane person, but with Amanda Waller, I'm not quite certain I see her logic 
like like pick an earth already what 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 do you really want to do it just it doesn't quite seem to add up that the dots you know the i's aren't being dotted and the t's aren't being crossed something's something's going something's not quite right in my head here and hopefully it'll be clarified in future issues yeah bottom line is she's acting like a nutbag and i guess we'll see what that <laughs> uh, maybe she's a clone too yeah. uh speaking of clones suicide squad annual suicide squad 2021 annual number 1 uh, Robbie Thompson handles the script. Eduardo Penseco and Julio Ferreira do the art on pages 1 through 7, 9, 26, 32 through 35. Dexter Soy handles, handles the remaining pages, which are pages 8, 10 through 25, 27 through 31, and 36 to 39. Chris Sotomayor on colors, Wes Abbott on letters. And as Rocky said, this is really the uh, the Superboy show. We find out the truth about Superboy, and I have to say I'm, I'm happy about it that it's because I just had my doubts whether, you know, Connor Kent would actually work for Amanda Waller, regardless of, of you know, whatever crazy serum or, or whatnot. Just didn't see him doing it. Uh, we also get some good Rick Flag stuff in here as well, who's a, a character that I've always had sort of mixed feelings about, um, just depending on the writer. Some writers, you know, they write him very stoic, and you don't, he comes across as very, a very flat character. And then others are giving him, you know, a lot more emotion. They play into the background, and it seems like uh, Robbie Thompson is is more to that side. So I I would say this is maybe some of my favorite Rick Flag characterization that I, I've ever seen in a Suicide Squad book. Now, granted, uh, I haven't read every single Suicide Squad title that's had Rick Flag in it ever, every single issue. Um, so maybe there's some I miss. But of of from of the books I've read, this is uh, some of my favorite Rick Flag. Uh, characterization so anyway what'd you think of this issue rocky well i i liked it i i like the narration by by rick flag he basically starts the narration off in, in the issue and he's he he basically i mean you should be loving rick flag because he believe he, he's he he if i didn't know better i'd think you were the one that narrated the issue jace he thinks amanda waller's insane <laughs> and yeah. has gone mad and she wants bag. to <laughs> and she wants to take over the world that's what rick flag thinks and uh, meanwhile, Amanda Waller herself establishes that she really likes Earth 3. She thinks she uses the Goldilocks analogy. Amanda Waller thinks Earth 3 is just right. You know, it's not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. It's perfect for takeover by Amanda Waller. And Amanda Waller gets to save Earth 3. And again, we know from Future State that she's going to be all happy and she's going to pat herself on the back for setting up Earth 3 having their own Superman with her Superboy slash match slash slash Superman. And um, this issue takes place in a Russian bunker on Earth Zero. Uh, Suicide Squad issue 6 ended with the Suicide Squad coming back from Earth 3 and ending up in a Russian bunker where, where Superboy of uh, or Superboy of the Suicide Squad ends up confronting the old style, the sort of like the pre-rebirth Superboy in the, in the leather jacket. And that confrontation, uh, that confrontation leads to the discovery that the Superboy, that the person we've been calling Superboy of the Suicide Squad is not in fact Superboy. He is in fact the bizarro version of Superboy called Match. 
And and Amanda Waller's been sort of basically developing a series of clones and basically trying to create her own Superman because that's what she wants. Amanda Waller has always been secretly trying to create her own her own clone of Superman that she can control. And now, which is ironic here because again, this flies in. It's it's not surprising for us who know Amanda Waller in this in these stories. She's a control freak. She wants to control everything. But yet, the irony is that at the end of Future State, she's all happy that she's she does all this with the with the motive of creating a Superman for Earth 3. And almost like she sets him free to be the Superman of Earth 3. So, again, none of this... I have a hard time... I'm like you. I, I, I have a hard time believing that Amanda Waller has this good intention in the end. I mean, I mean the amount of havoc and destruction she has caused just to to accomplish one good intention is just astonishing to me. But um, uh, Amanda, Amanda's the type of, you know, th- there's a point in this story that I think is very telling. At one point, Amanda Waller's own lieutenant, uh, when, when everything falls apart and, you know, she, the, the truth about the Superboy is discovered and, you know, uh, Belle Reeve is, is, basically her, her machinations have been discovered in this issue. They've got to leave. And her one Lieutenant says to her, are we fugitives now? And Amanda Waller says, don't be ridiculous. We are the heroes of this story. And that sums up Amanda Waller perfectly in her mind. She is always the hero. It doesn't matter what she does. It doesn't matter how atrocious her actions are. It doesn't matter what she does. Amanda Waller is always the hero in her own story. And of course the best villains, I suppose, uh, are always the ones that are the heroes in their own story that they don't they don't think of themselves as being evil. Those makes the most intriguing characters. But you you know as you pointed out, it's getting increasingly difficult to think of Amanda Waller as an antihero, uh, because she's just she's sort of like that complete psychotic bitch that sends these people in, and it's somehow it's always the members of the Suicide Squad who are who start off worse more villainous than her, but also they, they, they end up having to form bonds with, with each other to survive in order to not only win the day, but also somehow outwit Amanda Waller, the very person that has the bombs planted in their head. That's the basis of Suicide Squad, of course, but that's just, the I guess, the nature of the story here. Um, Waller has her Superman at the end of this issue, and uh, now that at the end of this issue, Match, you know, he... Uh, match ultimately, well, I guess Superboy remembers who he is. I guess he he's going to slowly remember who he is. Uh, Nocturna, clearly, there's some there's a love interest there. There's prob- Robbie Thompson appears to be developing a relationship between Nocturna and Match, which are probably appropriate. Nocturna is kind of an undead person anyway, and Match is kind of a bizarro clone, so they're probably a match made in I don't know hell <laughs> or on Earth three, I suppose. I don't know, but in any event. Uh, the, this issue was people will be happy with this issue because I think a lot of people are glad that it's match because now we have we now have both Superboys we've got we got the Superboy in the leather jacket that we saw in the pages of Action Comics of Bendis's Action Comics that we've seen in the pages of uh, of we'll see in the pages of Titans and so a lot of the continuity glitches that we thought were glitches perhaps there's an explanation now to explain those hiccups uh, that in fact they're they're not hiccups as much as we thought they were and um, yeah 
the the art here I thought was pretty good. I thought the you know the there's a lot of action between the Superboy and their in their in their fight sequences. I thought it worked quite well. The 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 full page spread where it showed it was revealed that the person was matched, the Bizarro Superboy. I thought that looked really good, looked really well. It was sort of an overhead shot where we could see above the shoulders of the leather leather clad Superboy looking down on match. I thought it looked really great, very well drawn. And yeah. Uh, Black Siren uses her scream to great effect. Uh, uh, Chulabra there, uh, her character, you know, she knocks out Black Siren after she screams. I thought that was quite funny <laughs> because they know they, they can't control her. But yeah, you know, again, uh, I think this is probably a more enjoyable issue. I think that uh, most of the time annuals are something that can be forgotten. You know, a lot of times they're just sort of throwaway stories in annuals. But this is one that I think is fairly crucial and i think for people that are interested in superboy uh, interested in connor kent even you know because this it's not connor kent but you know those most people most dc fans of the last 10 years they love superboy slash connor kent uh they like his mythology this is a must read i think for for fans of superboy regardless of whatever incarnation you like and i think in that regard it will work and it definitely Again, moving into Suicide Squad, this clearly builds on Amanda Waller getting her Superman, getting her Superboy, because this this heads right into her plans to take over Earth-3, which we know at some point she's going to be taking out the uh, crime syndicate and making moves on Earth-3. So overall, it's, it's kind of a must-read if you've been following Suicide Squad so far. Yeah, I agree. Really important. You're right. We should have made sure to, to talk about it first before uh, the regular Suicide Squad issue. The only thing I wasn't sure about, I mean, Connor Kent's been back for a while. Why, why when he shows up, does he? why is he back in that costume he hasn't worn since the 90s? That's the one part that didn't make, make sense to me. I mean, the whole reason that Match is wearing the jeans and the black shirt as a clone of Superboy is because that's what his costume was at, at the time. So yeah. other than... Well, it makes it easy to tell them apart when when they're fighting. It just didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Uh, and honestly, the way DC Editorial has used uh, Superboy recently hasn't made a whole lot of sense. I mean, can lay some of that blame at the feet of Bendis and his Young Justice, I guess. Yeah, um, that's that's been a disaster. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like it's hard to even know where where we're at with with Superboy these days, but. I wasn't familiar with the character of Match before this, obviously, since we didn't even know that he appeared all the way back in 97. But I, I like that Robbie Thompson is, is you know, mining from previous eras. It's it's hard to imagine, you know, that was sort of a bit of a golden age for comics. And people look back on the 90s, that big boom period of comics, uh, and then it followed quickly by a bust period of, in the 90s. And it's not looked back on fondly, but when you think about it, you look back at a lot of that stuff, it's... It, it was sort of a heyday for DC with the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern and the Connor Hawk um, Green Arrow and Wally West was, was was Flash and we had that Superboy and um, yeah it's 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 pretty interesting to think back on that time period and it's sort of making a, a comeback now um, but that was twenty four years ago that's yeah. a long it's a long time it's great. we're uh, getting old it, my friend I know it may, definitely makes me feel my my age. So yeah, I, I did enjoy this, uh, this issue, uh, and, and even more so than the, the Superboy stuff, which was, which was ne necessary, I would say. 
And again, it made me feel good about the fact that this is, because to me is, is um, you know, not uh, an expert on Superboy any stretch of the imagination. I haven't read a lot of his Teen Titans appearances. Didn't read a lot of his, his um, regular title. Mostly know him from the, the Superman Return storyline when he you know, was one of four uh, Superman replacements. And he always came across as, as a bash, a little bit of an unlikable character, but then kind of matured. Uh, you know, and take a, Damien could take a lesson from that, kind of matured and became beloved. Um, but it just never made sense to me in reading Future State Suicide Squad that that Connor Kent, that Connell would ever have anything to do with Amanda Waller. Uh, and so it does make me, uh, you know, feel a lot better about my understanding of the character to, to find out that this wasn't the real uh, Superboy after all. Uh, and then, like I said, the Rick Flag stuff is is really compelling. The fact that he appears to be about to put together a team to take out Amanda Waller uh, is just fantastic. Uh, and that leads into the next book where Amanda Waller is dead. So you would think it, I'd really love it. It's uh, Suicide Squad Get Joker Book 2 from writer Brian Azzarello. Art is by Alex Maleev, colors by Matt Hollingsworth, and letters by Jared K. Fletcher. Well, Amanda Waller's not really mentioned much here. You know, we know she got killed in the first issue. Um, and basically, the rest of the Suicide Squad is just kind of waiting around for something to happen. Uh, and basically, the Joker ends up reaching out to them, and, and they end up meeting up with the Joker and trying to uh, to get the, the boom box, as it were, uh, out from under his control so he no longer is, is holding it over them but uh, i don't know if it was the alex Maleev art um or the matt hollandsworth really washed out colors i mean i'm not a big fan of, of alex Maleev's style but this just didn't really work for me um and it, it kind of goes to to the fact that i didn't this wasn't a, a a series i was planning on picking up at all um and i didn't get a chance to read it before we even talked about it um the, you know, the first time, but I, I just didn't really enjoy this. It, it felt like a tour to, to read. Um, Jason Todd's probably the only character in here that I, I even have a passing interest in. Um, it just felt like, like a bunch of wasted pages with the, the suicide squad, the current member of the current members of the team, just kind of sitting around talking, waiting on the Joker. Like I, and what was the point? I, I, I didn't get it. Um, there's a few cool moments here or there, um, like where Plastique blows up the, the phone of, of a Joker, Joker messenger boy. Uh, I thought that was fun. Um, but yeah, I just didn't care for it. Like um, the Joker forcing Harley to, to dance on a stripper pole, that's not fun. That's not entertaining. That's not not even like uncomfortable in a, in a good way that makes you think. It's just gross. And yeah, I just, I didn't, I didn't care for this at all. Not, not one bit. So it wasn't for me. And uh, I don't know, maybe I'll skim the last issue just to see how it all shakes out. But no, not, not a good story. Not definitely not for me. So uh, my instincts were were correct, you know, right from the start on this one. Didn't think I would like it. The only reason I read the first issue is because Amanda Waller got killed. Uh, And that wasn't even that satisfying, to be honest with you. Maybe it's because I know it's a black label and it's not in, in continuity. But nah, this didn't work for me. wasn't wasn't fun. And it, it uh, you know, I guess it goes to show uh, we're definitely correct in giving Robbie Thompson credit when we're talking about the way he balances sort of the dark satirical side of Suicide Squad. He brings so much humor to the book, and that's what makes it work. This is just dark 
and, and any humor that's in there for me falls flat. And that, I think that's part of the problem I have with it. It's just, there's nothing <clears throat> redeeming or fun about this. It's just dark and depressing and at times kind of gross. <laughs> like, yeah, the Joker making Harley dance on a pole. Uh, I, I could have done without that in my life for sure. So I don't know. Maybe your experience was different, Rocky. What did you think? Uh, I guess I'm an outlier on this. So I, you know, it's funny because I, I, I think that just, I guess anecdotally, just me just perusing the internet, a, a lot of people seem to have issues with the first issue as well. And, and I really liked it. I thought it was great. And I, and I'm having a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun with this issue too. Maybe I just, uh, maybe I just like the way Brian Azzarello thinks. And maybe that says more about me than I care to admit. But, uh, <laughs> I, I like the darkness. I, I like his darkness. I like the, I, I like his, uh, uh, I know there's there's uh, some other uh, friends I have online. Uh, Weird Science DC, they, they, some of them really don't like Azarello's approach. They didn't like his approach on Birds of Prey where he had Black Canary sleep with three guys at the same time and at a bar and uh, in the Birds of Prey uh, series uh, or the one-shot Birds of Prey penned by, uh, scripted by Brian Azarello and, and his, uh, he can, he can go quite dark and he's, he's not afraid to, uh, he's not afraid to go there and he's not, af- and, uh, and he'll put his foot down and he'll, he, he's, he's very fairly blunt in interviews as well. I like this. This is, uh, th- this is the, the, I mean, the Joker has the boom box here. The Joker controls it, man. And they need to get, get that from the Joker and the Joker wants to meet them and they, they got to go meet the Joker whether they want to or not. And when the Joker says, Harley, you, you, you got to dance for me, Harley, you're going to dance for me. I'm going to blow your brains up. You know, your, your heads are going to blow up. I mean, and that's just, that's just par for the course here. I like the characterizations here. I think what we're, what works for me here is I actually like this dialogue. I think this dialogue works. This feels like I'm I'm watching a dark, kick-ass movie. I'm enjoying this. I this is this is the stuff that I can sip sip my crown royal while I'm enjoying this. I I thoroughly enjoyed reading this. And at the end of the day, here we have another casualty of the Suicide Squad at the end here. And I can't even remember what the guy's name is, but it uh, it doesn't matter because at the end, the Suicide Squad has to face. Rick, there's another version of the Suicide Squad that they got to face, and and so now we got Jason Todd, Harley, and and the rest of the crew. They're going to be fighting. They're going to go up against Rick Flag, Deathstroke, Bloodsport, Peacemaker, Deadshot, and another character. I'm not even sure who it is. <laughs> I mean, good lord. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure what the plot is right now. So if I was going to criticize Azarello, I'm not sure what the Joker has got planned. Because the Joker, okay, so the Joker's got the boombox and the Joker wants to meet them. What does the Joker want? The Joker has an agenda here and he hasn't really said what it is yet. There's just been a lot of chaos. There's been a lot of swearing, a lot of uh, uh, witty banter back and forth between the characters. And if you don't like that banter, then you're not going to enjoy this comic. If you if you're not into the characterizations and and it sounds like you're not, I completely get that. I enjoy it. I like it. I will say uh, it doesn't move the plot forward. Not a lot happens there. Basically, this is just you know the the, the Joker got the boombox at the end of the first issue. Amanda Waller was supposedly killed, and this entire issue has them basically being uh, the the Joker tells them to meet him at a nightclub and. The highlight of the issue is, is is Harley doing a dance, but 
to me, the enjoyment of the issue is in the dialogue and getting there and in, in those character moments where you got to, I mean, I really thought that some of the character work in particular with Wild Dog and Wild Dog, everybody hates Wild Dog and uh, Red Hood hates Wild Dog. Wild Dog is almost doing it on purpose. It almost seems like him and him and Red Hood, in many ways, <laughs> it was all part of the plan. It, the, the chaos in the in the nightclub, the way they worked together, uh, the, the way Harley, the way Harley had the razor blade in her mouth and attempted and was seducing the Joker and and snuck the razor blade into her mouth to try to slit the 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 Joker's joker's throat as she's dancing provocatively provocatively on his uh on his uh, lap this is uh this is this is hardcore stuff this is but i thought this was entertaining and i thought the art worked well artistically i bought into this i enjoyed this uh all in all for for this week i think that uh well my favorite issue this week was the the swamp thing issue seven was the one i enjoyed the most but I'm. I also think it's a really. It's a pretty good week to be a Suicide Squad fan. So I'll leave it at that. I find it so interesting that you love how dark Azarello is because you're the king of DC. I need hope in my books. There's no hope in anything else. <laughs> I don't need it on Black Label. I don't need it. I don't need it for everything. I mean, this isn't no, mainstream. Right? <laughs> I guess. I mean, if you if you're reading Azarello, you know there's no hope. Abandoned. <laughs> at every on every Brian Azarello cover, it should be that saying, right? Abandon hope, all ye who enter. Yeah. And in hope, all you. I have a bad feeling book. about this. Yeah. <laughs> Brian Azarello has written it. Yeah. Uh, all right, on to the last book, and this was my favorite book of the week: uh, "Nice House on the Lake" from writer James Tynan. Alvaro Martinez Bueno handles the art. Jordi Belair on colors and world design does the letters. Wow, this was good. Uh, so, give us your thoughts first, Rocky. What did you think? Um. Well. Uh, this issue actually has some fairly major revelations. Uh, uh, that, that, uh, sorry, I just need to get set up here. And in particular, there is, uh, one of the characters in, uh, there's like, I think there's a total of eight or nine inhabitants, uh, of the, this alien being Walter has met, has, has met this group of, 10, I guess, I guess it's 10 friends throughout his life. And he's invited all these 10 friends to this nice house on the lake. And if Armageddon happens, the world ends, but everything is perfectly preserved in this nice house on the lake. And all of these, all of these 10 people, they've been at the beginning of this issue four, they've been living at this nice house on the lake for, for about a week now. And they're getting accustomed to it. But, you know, not everybody is happy to be there. And they basically have all the amenities that you can imagine, all the amenities that you could possibly want. Uh, but there are some secrets that are, that are revealed in this issue that are, are quite freaky, you know, and, uh, Molly, uh, the accountant, Molly is, she's, she's, she's really depressed. She's having a very hard time of it. What's revealed here. And it's quite fascinating is that they discovered through trial and error that whatever they want at, at first they thought they were running out of food, but then they realized that if all of them privately write down on their notepad what it is they want, uh, and 
the notepad then and they leave it in their room, when they wake up the next morning, what they want will basically magically appear. It, it will be there. Walter will deliver them whatever it is that they want. And there's a full page spread where, where, you know, people, you know, they'll write down what it is they need. And so if they need a grocery list, they write it down and then somehow boxes will just arrive the next morning. None of them see the boxes arrive. You know, they, they, so no one's ever seen everyone, anyone deliver these boxes off, but whatever it is you want, will just mad, it will show up there for you. And, and, but what's interesting here is, um, and there, there's a great full page spread. There's a full page spread here where I think it's, it looks like it's David sleeping and, uh, he's surrounded. He's, he, one of them, he actually requested Action Comics number one, the first appearance of Superman and Detective Comics, and it was actually delivered to him. <laughs> And so he's surrounded by comic books and everything and everything is a mess. They're living high in the hog. They can do whatever they want. I mean, one of them even requested a, 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 you know, a monkey in an astronaut suit and that was delivered. I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's literally everything that they want is delivered to them. It's just, it's completely fascinating. But where it gets really dark and this is where the horror element comes in is Molly wants to kill herself. She requests, she requests some rope. She requests some blades. She wants to kill herself. And, but that's the one thing that Walter won't deliver to her. So she wants those things, but it's almost as if Walter knows that if you're requesting something that's going to hurt you or harm you, he won't, you know, it won't show up. And David, the comedian, uh, David, the comedian, takes the accountant, uh, Molly, aside and says, you know, he, he actually does her a favor. He requests a, a razor to, 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 to do shaving and he gives her his razor as a gift saying, look, you should have your choice. If you want to end your life here, you should have that choice. So here it is. But before you do that, come, I want to show you something. And, and ultimately where this issue ends is on the massive uh, cliffhanger where... Uh, David slits his throat, his throat in front of the group. And of course he doesn't die. He says, we can't die. He won't let us. Walter won't let us. So we have to learn how to live. That's the big revelation. Walter will not let anyone who is, who is at this nice house on the lake die. They are literally immortal in a sense, or they would appear to be immortal. I love, you know, nobody knows how they got there. They don't actually remember specifically, they, they, not all of them remember the details of how they got to the lake. They remember leaving their house, but they don't, they remember basically waking up and they were at the lake. Um, the, there are symbols that are scattered throughout the island that mean different things. Each one of them has their own symbol. So when they, when a package arrives, each one of the guests has their own symbol and these symbols themselves, uh, I should, uh, I should indicate that these symbols themselves are actually uh, each individual character uh, has their own symbol, uh, and and these symbols were actually beautifully illustrated on uh, the third printing of issue one that came out, which I'm showing to everyone on YouTube. But uh, but basically, it's a every symbol is is basically a circle with different uh, different lines within the circle to to connote one of the characters within the nice house on the lake, and. I love the themes here. This is an allegory I find of, of heaven and hell. And there's a fine line between the two because it's like James Tynion is saying, hell is just like heaven, but with only a few more limitations. You know, hell is heaven that you can never, 
that you can never escape from. So here they are all these individuals. They're, they're on this nice house on the lake, but they can never leave. I mean, isn't, isn't that, on the surface, isn't that what heaven is? It's a place where you never die. You're in heaven. You get whatever you want. So what are you bitching about? What does anybody who's at this nice house on the lake, isn't this heaven? You can have whatever you want. What are you bitching about? And yet, we got people like Molly, who is horrified at the prospect of being there. Of course, she wants her husband. She requested her dead husband. Deliver me my dead husband. I want my husband. If this is So this is almost heaven, but not quite. But Walter won't let them die. He's keeping them there. And he's trying to create a heaven for them. But he realizes that he can't, you know, obviously he can't do that. But that's where this gets so fascinating for me. And it just, I, I love that idea that, you know, on the surface, this is everything these people could want. Anything they want, they can request and they will be given to them as long as it doesn't harm them. Isn't, isn't that kind of what many people's idea of heaven is? But I guess not. So there's a fine line between heaven and hell. And, and that's where I find the horror element is in this story. And that's what I find so fascinating about it. And I, I just really thought that came through for me as the dominant theme in this issue. How do you feel about it, Jace? Yeah, I echo your thoughts 100%. A lot of the same things that, that you know made an impact on you are the reasons that it's my, my favorite issue for the week. Um, yeah, that idea that you can have anything you want. You know, all I could think about was, you know, if that were me, what would be on my list, you know? And I'd be like, man, there's, I'd have every comic, you know, printed in English ever made. You know? <laughs> Spend my days bagging and boarding and reading comics, and why would that be a bad thing? But, you know... There are some other down, uh, you know, some some bad things about this. Some some downsides to this this idea that you can have whatever you want, except you can't have your freedom, right? You're stuck here with these people, whether you like them or not. Um, and and maybe the people that you would want to be there with, you're you're not with. And you know, there's uh, one aspect to the story that you you didn't mention is is as the as they gather at the end of the issue for this meal that they, they come to realize that, yes, a few of them are close here or there, but overall as a group, they don't know each other really, really well. This isn't like, hey, this is a group of 10, like, you know, classmates that all knew each other really, really well or, or like a football team or a baseball team or something like that where they were all friends. They were all close friends and they, they'd been through sort of the, the, the trenches together. That's not the case. It's like, you know, one person is, is friends with two other people and then those are and they're close. And then those two people are, are, you know, friends with two other people and they're close. Um, but that initial person barely knows the, the other uh, acquaintances. So, you know, they're still trying to, to figure things out. And as the story has been playing out, uh, what Tynan has done an excellent job of is doling out these little pieces of information slowly to kind of build this world and give us a, as readers, a good understanding of what's going on. So, yeah, in this issue, we, we are we come to learn that they, for the most part, can get whatever they want. But the fact that they can't die, that's huge. And exactly what does that mean? Like, is is he going to heal? He you know, slits his own throat. Is that going to heal? Is he just going to walk around the rest of the time with blood leaking out of his, uh, you know, side of his neck? What, what happens if, like, they cut somebody's head off? Uh, you know, like how far does that immortality go and, and what, and what's the point of it? You know, like Walter is apparently, and we don't even know if he did this with the, you know, authorization of his superiors. We're still under 
going under the assumption that he's some sort of alien um, and maybe that alien race decided that humanity didn't deserve to continue living on, on earth. Um, you know, a little bit of Brandon Thomas horizon type uh, thought there. Um, yeah. Or is it that they're transforming the planet into something that would be more hospitable for themselves? Maybe they live on a planet where, you know, they need methane in the air to breathe or, or whatever, right? They're, they're, they're tariff. This is their version of terraforming it, tear down what's there and then rebuild. Uh, but for some reason, you know, Walter, uh, um, apparently some sort of, um, you know, forerunner to this uh, invasion or this destruction was there for a long time. And he, he made friends and he decided that he cared about these people enough that he wanted to save them. But maybe it's a lack of understanding of what it means to be human, to have humanity and to have those connections, whether it be familial connections or, uh, you know, connections with uh, your, uh, your spouse or your children. Um, and it seems like in a way he, he did, okay, I'm trying to fulfill that by, by saying, okay, I'm, everybody's going to go into the house and have a couple of really close friends, people they've chosen to become close with. You know, that, that, that whole saying, you choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Uh, but again, I go back to the fact that not everybody is close with everybody. Obviously, that's going to change over time, maybe. Uh, or maybe some people are going to choose to isolate. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I'm thinking, would I trade my freedom and would I trade the choice to spend eternity, apparently, with 10 people who I don't get to choose if it meant I never got to see the people that I would choose ever again, right? Like if I didn't get to be there with my wife or my, or my children, it's a fascinating thought experiment. It's, it's, it's really, really interesting. And anybody who's listened to the podcast for any extended period of time knows my favorite comics are the ones that make you think. And this one's got me thinking, this one's really got me thinking and not even so much thinking of about where uh, I'm like, let me try to figure out where James Tynan's going with this. Because that seems beside the point. What, who Walter is? Is he an alien? Is he some supernatural being? Is he, you know, is it aliens terraforming Earth? That's all beside the point. This is about the character drama. This is about the interaction of the 10 people that are in the house. It's about the choices they make. It's about how they're dealing with this horrific, unprecedented situation. And I said it from the beginning, the way Tynan sets it up, it's one of those things where you can't help but put yourself in the shoes of those characters and wonder if I were them, what would I do? And that to me is the value in the book because it's a book that goes way beyond I'm enjoying it and I'm entertained by it while I'm reading it to something I'm thinking about while I'm, you know, driving in the car or, you know, in the shower or before I go to sleep at night, I'm, I'm thinking about it like, man, that's a really good story. Uh, it's a fascinating situation. What would I do if I were in that situation? So it was a no-brainer for me. I mean, this is this is just an amazing series. And if you haven't been reading it, you really need to pick it up. I mean, it is, it is top-notch storytelling. Shows the power of the medium of what can be done in comics. Because this doesn't work as well in any other medium. I think it could translate to a, a television show reasonably well. Yeah. Um, but it would never have the moodiness... Uh, that Alvaro Martinez Bueno brings to it. And obviously it would be very dependent on the casting to make sure that you were getting that creepiness and that foreboding and all those different emotions that we receive through the art and the color work. 
because that's the other thing. Jordi Belair is the color artist, probably the best, most talented colorist working in comics right now. She nails it 100% as well um, in terms of giving us the, the, the foreboding feeling uh, of the story and setting that tone with color. So uh, I would expect Eisner nominations for this. It's, it's absolutely yeah. fantastic. It is. The only negative that I can say is it's going on hiatus. It was already planned. I know some people were like, no, nice house on the lakes ending. You know, Tynan announced his Substack deal and that he was leaving DC. And at the same time, there weren't any solicits for nice house on the lake. Cause I think it's going on hiatus after issue number five. It was always planned to be going on hiatus to give them a break, to make sure they're caught up. Uh, I think it's going to come back after uh, the first of the year. So I think, like I said, we get one more, we get issue five and then we won't get anything else until uh, 2022. And, that, and that's disappointing only because it's so good. What I, I, I think of this twilight zone, if, if, if this was a twilight zone episode, the twilight zone episode could have ended with this issue and just left it like that. I mean, you oh, think yeah. you're in heaven and what a great way to end a twilight zone episode that the revelation that nobody can die and you're trapped there. You can never leave. You get everything you, you want. You can you never want. leave. You can get whatever you want, but you're there forever. Yeah. It's yeah. paradise. You can never leave. And the irony is it sounds an awful lot like heaven. And it, there's a statement here against religion, whether Tinian is making one or not, but it's absolutely there. And that's what I like about it because it makes people sort of rethink, well, what do you think heaven is? I mean, because really, what's the difference? So you can get your dead husband back. Even if even if Molly could get her dead husband back and her dead husband was with was resurrected and she was there uh, and he was with her on the lake, she's still trapped with her with 11 people instead of 10. One happens, one would be her husband, but you still can't leave. You still, so, I mean, what do you think heaven is? It, it actually, it makes me wonder, well, what do I think heaven is? Because maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not such a good thing to live in paradise forever. I mean, and it just goes to show you, I mean, hey, guess what? Maybe heaven is a place on earth, right? Yeah, I mean, it, probably the only way I'm ever going to get to own a Action Comics number one, Detective <laughs> Comics number 27. That's right. Is if I'm in a similar situation, you know, because he, it's he worth writes it. it on his list. He, he writes it on his list. Uh, and what does he say? Like, uh, how does he, he phrases it? Uh, like original edition or, or something like that. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, he calls it. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm trying to flip through the list right now to see if I can find it. It was pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, the first, yeah, I called it. Uh, oh, yeah, the the, the three most. Oh, yeah, he like wants the most expensive booze. Yeah, the most expensive uh, bottles of liquor, the most, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then yeah. he says, first appearance of Batman, oh, original, that's what he calls right. it. Like, he wants an original. First, first appearance, appearance of Superman, original. First appearance of Wonder Woman, original. Yeah. Another bottle of the world's most expensive yes. liquor. And every piece of clothing Leonardo DiCaprio packed for a first <laughs> last vacation, and, and Viagra. <laughs> yeah, I don't see the I don't see the Wonder Woman, like, Sensation Comics, right? Wasn't that what she first appeared in? Yeah. But he, I did notice right away on that page um, that he had that spinner rack in the background. <laughs> I was like, uh, man, after my own heart. So uh, anyway, absolutely fantastic issue. Um, yeah, really, really impressed with what Tynan's been able to do. 
and uh, big big fan. And uh, like I said, I'm just I'm only I'm only sad that we are going to have to take a little break before we before we get um, any of the rest of uh, of the story. Like I like I said, I, I think we get I think we get one more issue. And then it goes on a, on a break. At least I, I hope so. Maybe that's wishful thinking. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, in addition to these books uh, that we talked about, um, there's also the uh, Justice League in Infinity, uh, which I haven't been reading, but the third issue of that comes out. Uh, we've got The Conjuring, The Lover, number four, the horror title, which I I actually did read, and it's it's been okay. Uh, the Batman Fortnite, uh, books get a hardcover collection. We get uh, the next Batman Second Son, which was originally printed digitally, gets a hardcover collection. Uh, and then one of my favorite titles that ended this year, which is absolutely spectacular, and I've been trying to get Cami Garcia on the show uh, to talk about it, but we just haven't been able to, to sync up our schedules. But Joker Harley Criminal Sanity gets a hardcover out this week uh, as well. And that that series was just a favorite of mine great art by uh, by miko suyan and who who's the other there was another artist that he shared uh jason badawa was right. the other artist uh who he shared uh art duties on on uh joker harley so uh thought it was like i said just absolutely spectacular um whether it was the miko suyan pages or the jason badawa pages they were they were fantastic my favorite harley story i've ever read without question it's close. So uh, that's out this week as well. Uh, don't forget, like I said, that Rocky and I had a chance to chat with Brandon Thomas and Daniel Semper, both at the top of their game right now when it comes to uh, creative work in comics, and really, really fun guys to just hang around and, and chat with. Uh, so that's out this week as well. Don't know that I'm going to have any creator-owned spotlights. I, I didn't have any last week either. Things have just been really, really busy at work and other things going on right now, but definitely trying to... Uh, to spread the, the word on, on creator-owned books. And uh, shout out to our, our boy Trevor from Dark Knight Nation, who successfully funded his third issue of Area 51, The Helix Project. Uh, was down to the wire, so it was great to see him uh, get over the finish line. So uh, anything you want to plug this week, Rocky, that you have coming up? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I got some... I'm still working on on my Infinite Crisis review, but now that uh, we've uh, finished reviewing Infinite Crisis or Infinite Frontier number six, I can now I can now review all of it in one nice little bundle. So I'm working on that this week, and hopefully that'll be out in the next six seven days. Yeah, what we really need is for DC to stop putting out so many books, so it doesn't take us <laughs> three hours to to talk about all of them. Good grief! Up a little more of our time. Yeah, what, and what's interesting is is other than DC, uh, this week is kind of light. Uh, not a lot of Marvel books, not a lot of independence this week either uh, on Wednesday. So, uh, which is great because last week was a very expensive week for me. Uh, didn't help that I bought a couple of one in twenty-five variants. So, <laughs> spent a, a lot last week. So this week, I'm glad. I think there's, I think in my local comic shop, there's only one book being pulled for me this week, which is absolutely fantastic. And I'll, I'll even mention what it is. It's Last Flight Out. Uh, so if you're a DC fan, you may know the name Mark Guggenheim, uh, one of the writers and producers on the show Arrow. He's got a, a really cool series kicking off from Dark Horse this week called Last Flight Out. And it's basically uh, end times on the Earth. And uh, one of the guys who was uh, crucial in helping build the technology to allow people to uh, escape the apocalypse, you know, helping build the ships or whatnot, uh, he's scheduled 
on the last flight out from Earth before it's destroyed to, to leave. And right at that morning when he's supposed to be getting on the, the, the ship or whatever it is, his daughter's supposed to be meeting there and she either gets kidnapped or goes missing and he has to go out searching for her uh, in a very limited time window so that he can, he can find, track her down, rescue her, find her if she's lost or whatever, and get her back on the ship in time to, uh, to leave Earth and catch that last flight out. So sounds good to me. And uh, I've met yeah. Mark Guggenheim before, really nice guy, really talented creator. So no, it's not a DC book. I do, uh, do recommend that. So uh, all right. I guess that's going to do it. For this episode, everybody, hope you all enjoyed it. We really appreciate you joining us. If you're on uh, YouTube checking us out, be sure you go to your favorite podcast app uh, or platform and subscribe to The Comic Source. If you're listening to us audio only, be sure you head over to YouTube, give this video a like, subscribe to Comic Boom. That's Comic Boom with an exclamation. Uh, subscribe to Rocky's channel so you know when he has cool things coming out like that Infinite Frontier review. So that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Really appreciate you joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.